Welcome to the final episode of Safe Room for 2021. This is bloody disgusting. Let's pick people's horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday, except probably the next couple of Mondays. That's what we just said. This week, I am your host, Neil Bolt. And I'm Jay Krieger. We're changing things up for this one, as the last time we did a sort of run through of what was going on in the year, that was me. So I thought, do it again. Why not? Let's end the year doing something a little different. So this week, we are looking back at the horror games that shaped 2021. We'll be counting down our best five games of 2021 and recalling our favourite first-time playthroughs. But first, Jay, I wanted to have a brief discussion about the state of horror gaming this year. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, when I was working out my games of the year, I felt pretty positive about the variety uh, I I saw in mine, at least. I mean, there's plenty that scratches a retro itch, uh, there's unique new experiences, and horror represented in so many different forms, I found as well, which is kind of a relief, considering it felt like a, it could be a bit one-note in previous years. I mean, also, the options for discovering these games are great still, the rise of Game Pass, you know, for good and for bad, as we have re- referenced before. Um, and then the thrilling experimental world of small studios growing ever more varied. And uh, that, again, will show, I think, this year. But for you, what stands out in horror gaming in 2021? Yeah, I think you nailed it in terms of the variety, right? In mm. past years, I think we've seen a lot of quality titles. But like you had said, it feels kind of like OneNote. Like it's yeah. scratching that same itch and that by the end of the year, it almost becomes even more increasingly difficult to differentiate certain experiences because yeah, they were enjoyable for the same reasons. But then when it comes time to actually trying to make a list or having this constructive conversation about which one did what better, it kind of just feels like it's the same three or four variables or positives for certain titles that you can just say like, well, I enjoyed this one more because maybe it's leaning into this genre of horror subsection of horror that I enjoy more than the other. But at the end of the day, a lot of those experiences kind of felt very similar or perhaps it was a year where there was more of an emphasis on like AAA horror. So then you had these really highly polished things that, again, felt sort of along the lines of what you had been experiencing throughout the various months of the year. And then you have the vice versa with between AAA, high production value and then indie titles. But sometimes in past years, we've seen a lot of indie games cropping up around the same type of, of experiences like we've kind of been noting throughout the year in terms of just our conversations revolving around things like Twitch and how that has had a massive impact on yes. not only game development, but the ways in which people latch on to certain trends. And then we see a whole new sort of crop of games coming out that are more being formulated because a certain genre or a certain style of gameplay is like hot for the moment, yeah. but it's not necessarily coming from a place that we would hope which would be like a real creative drive in evolving on horror in a way that we haven't seen before Um, and i think that this year in particular for a year where for whatever reason i see lots of people online and whatnot saying things like well this kind of wasn't a great year for either movies or games or all of these things but in my mind this has been a year that you know has unfortunately been marred uh, by covid and things like that it's been a year where we've seen a tremendous amount of creativity and a variety in the types of both, again, like films and games that we've been playing. And absolutely, I'm just really excited to talk about some of our favorite games of the year because I have a feeling that our lists are, uh, you know, they touch <laughs> upon maybe one or two similarities. But again, there's so much variety. And, you know, the, the reality being that 
you being the video game editor for Bloody Disgusting, you get to play a lot more than I do. And I'll be interested to see kind of certain titles that you've been able to uh, experience throughout the year that I haven't quite yet had the chance to, but hopefully can remedy that in the future. Yes, I, I'm hopeful of this as well. I mean, the, the issue I've had, of course, is then <laughs> trying to fit everything in, which is uh, difficult. So, you know, I will shortly have an honorable mention section just because there's just so much stuff I wanted to talk about, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, I think the other thing that's been important for me this year in terms of noticing this is doing this podcast, Safe Room, is that writing about stuff and being in your own head about it doesn't quite scratch the same itch for me. You know, you know, you can get your thoughts out there by all means, but when you sort of have a proper conversation, which, you know, it's very hard in this day and age, you know, outside of doing things like this and having conversations online, um, then you sort of think about things in different ways. We've had this discussion back and forth with different guests, with ourselves, you know, where we come away with different appreciations of games and how we feel about them truly. I mean, I think key to that, and I'm mentioning this title because it's not on my honorable mentions now. I mean, it was on my games of the year so far list when we did the Midway episode, but um, now the medium by Blue Team has pretty much disappeared out of the picture because of the discussions we had about the game and the more I thought about it and then I went had to go back and replay it for a review on PS5 and it was just as much as I could appreciate what it did well it's just going back with that knowledge of where it goes just made the whole experience unpleasant you know and it, th- that was a shame but this is the great thing about it I don't think it's a bad thing to sort of really get into that I'm glad we, I didn't just play the medium once and not really think about that bit again and then end up with my list at the end of the year without really re-evaluating it, which I've done a couple of games here, at least on a list I've done, because I was like, I want to know if it should be higher up or if it should be in that list. And with some of those games, it's very easy because they're maybe a couple of hours. You can sort of get a feel for it again. But um, yeah, so let's kind of get into it. Um, so as I said, picking a top five was extremely difficult for me. Um, I mean, there's so many games I'd love to spend time talking about. Some, as I said, can maybe wait for another day or another episode. Um, but for now, a quickish list. Uh, my honorable mentions. I'll try to be quick, I promise. But um, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to be taking notes, jotting down <laughs> stuff I need to get to during the holiday or the new year. So. Yeah, so not necessarily the best of the bunch in every case. Um, some of the stuff I've like played never couldn't get around to reviewing because of time constraints or you know whatever it may be. But uh, in each case, they did something for me that at least deserves a mention. In other cases, it's that they just don't fit the remit for re being high up in a horror game list. So while I may have reviewed them for Blake Disgusting. That was before I discovered they aren't really very horror-based, but you know, you'll know you find this out again when my article goes out below disgusting for my games of the year, which won't be ranked necessarily, that uh, I, I say pretty much the same things. So um, I will talk myself with the game that has, you know, from very early on in this year, I was like, it's never going to be game of the year. It's never probably going to be in the mentions of the top five, top 10, probably top 20. But... God damn, I loved its goofy little ass. And that game is Werewolf the Apocalypse Earthblood, 
uh, uh, which is like the offshoot of Vampire the Masquerade series, which in itself has about 10 gajillion different offshoots about releasing the game that everyone wants. Um, so if I could describe Werewolf the Apocalypse Earthblood, it's like when you got one of those licensed games back in the PS3, Xbox 360 era, um, say for a James Bond or a comic book thing. That was, you know, It's quite clearly a mid-tier thing that has a gimmick that might be okay. It's a perfectly passable six, seven out of 10 game that you can go, that was okay, I enjoyed it. Didn't move the needle too much, but it is something. If you could sort of describe what the game's about, imagine James Cameron's avatar, but with werewolves. And that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. And the lead character is basically Triple H from WWE. Um, so yeah, you basically play like a clan of wolves, the werewolves that uh, have their land encroached upon by some sinister corporation who are destroying the land and they're all very deeply connected with that. And you basically sneak around facilities, shape-shifting into a normal wolf to sort of stealthily avoid. And then when you get found out, you basically morph into a proper werewolf and have like, you know, proper scraps for everything and that is pretty much the pattern it's you know sneak as a human sneak as a wolf battle as a werewolf and it goes on and on and on and on like that it's not particularly wonderful I think I was saying to you before we did this episode uh, that it's rated on PS4 at least um, like the second worst rated game of the year on Metacritic um, which was both shocking and delightful for me because I, I love the idea of loving something that's <laughs> that much but um, I just a game where you can just become a wolf and then a werewolf at any given moment and just both takes itself very seriously and doesn't it's just delightful to me and I, I had such a good time with it and it was like the perfect sort of start of the year thing where you don't want to set the bar too high you don't want it set too low because you, you want something in the middle and it was perfect for me in that regard i could see that being a game that you like ease yourself into the year with and then it really tops out at like playing that for like 30 minutes of just kind of like goofy fun Mm. that taps into a lot of the genre uh tropes and things like that that we enjoy with some of our more uh maybe trashy horror uh, games or exploits and whatnot but yeah it seems like a very much a uh a budget title that has some moments of fun, but probably outstays its welcome quite a bit. If, uh, if just judging from like the game from the outset, yeah, it's kind of the vibe that I get from it, yeah. But you know, like I said, I always wanted it to be part of this, I knew it would have to be mentioned, and I'll probably spend more time talking about this now than I do the rest of these games, which is hilarious <laughs> when I mention some of them, but still, it's yeah, if you see it cheap or it comes on Game Pass or something and you want something that's a, a nice little distraction, go for it. You know? It's like, just don't set expectations high. It is just that perfect sort of thing. I think those kind of games just are increasingly missing in, in the game sphere these days. It's either one thing or another. It's not really anything like this. And maybe that's why it felt a bit special you know, to me in that regard. Um, yeah. So like going all the way to the other end of the, the spectrum here, um, <laughs> I'm going to mention Deathloop. Now, Deathloop would be probably my game of the year in reality. You know, if we were talking like all games, everything, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, I gave it the full five skulls, probably bloody disgusting. So 
naturally I'd be like, yes, this is amazing. It should be top dog. But in all honesty, it's less horror based than any of Arcane's previous games, you know, than any of them. It's fantastic. It's very gory when it wants to be and does some absurdly silly stuff. But, and as a game, it is just mesmerizing. It just, the things it does take all the stuff we talked about, about Prey and Dishonored to a whole new level. And I absolutely adore it. But yeah, it's not a horror game. So while it's not a horror game, I reviewed it for Bloody Disgusting. I love it. It's great. If you have the chance to play it, play it. Um, I can't wait for that to come out on Xbox, which, by the way, yeah. once it leaves exclusivity. Because all day I've been seeing like the deals from like Warrior64 and stuff on Twitter for various games and movies and stuff during all these holiday sales. And I think that is going for Deathloop's like 20 bucks now mm. on Amazon or something. And the whole time I saw that, I was just like, why the <laughs> fuck is this not on Xbox yet? I want to play this game so badly. So it's definitely, uh, I would say, it's definitely a game that I cannot wait to play. Hopefully next year. If it hopefully next year. And, and whatnot. Hopefully. hopefully next year we're here talking about Redfall as being Arcane's like, yes. in, in this list. Absolutely. As they are very much going back to horror from the, the Prey dudes and do that so next again I'm sort of jumping to different things very minimalist very uh, one man game uh, Nick's Umbra which mm. is a folk horror score attack game I you know one of the things I've enjoyed the last few weeks is seeing the idea of a score attack game in horror that does some weirdo things and Nick's Umbra was like it seems such a simple premise to me that you know you are literally just running around a forest trying not to cons- get consumed by the satanic darkness of the forest it's this very monochrome look to it and the idea is that you try and survive as long as you can picking up these little things and banishing ghost skulls with your sword of light and yeah for that being all it is it really is effective it really does something special in that regard uh, and I hate I didn't get around to reviewing it because I, I saw that it, it gained some traction at least elsewhere uh, you know, the PC Gamer Polygon places like that have covered it since and been very high on praising it I I had to mention it here in that regard because I, I think it was fully deserving I'd seen it uh, you know, mentioned here and there for, for months on end and then you know, quite luckily the developer uh, offered me a code and I was like yeah and yeah it was really interesting time to me I, I, I very much appreciated that one so yes Nick's Umbra that's N-I-X U-M-B-R-A if anyone listening at home or J um, I'm adding it to my list <laughs> so and no, I just said about score attack uh, horror puppet combo you know, just the day before we recorded this um surprise launched Christmas Massacre um, again got an early code for that so I was fortunate enough to play that and before it was announced and yeah it's just the video game equivalent of Silent Night Deadly Night in a sense the prologue literally is like an orphanage where a small boy decides to go on a murder spree and the idea is he's got to try and sneak around the nun and the nuns who are looking for him and then get the knife and then go for it yeah. and literally then it's like kill the people don't let them escape do it as quiet as you can to make sure that's the case turn off lights turn off lights. I likened it to a fast paced festive manhunt 
and mm. it really is. It, it, you know, it's. But the difference here being, you are someone who very much enjoys the idea of killing everyone, and <laughs> you get high scores based on you know how quickly you kill them, how like, you know how cleanly you do it. It's game over if someone escapes after the prologue, you know, because the prologue, as I said, set when he's a child, then it goes when he's older, where he's told by a Christmas tree that he must go on this killing spree. <laughs> a Christmas tree with googly eyes at that. And, yeah, he basically goes... Extra demonic. Yeah, so he goes around houses where they're having parties and, uh, like, to stores and all sorts of things like that. And just... And it's... Yeah, for what it is in, in that sense, I was surprised that it ended up being quite enjoyable and, like... Because I expect, you know, we've talked about Murder House and like how it has its cool little story and how it sort of builds to this sort of really, you know, chaotic thing. But here it's like barely any preamble. Once you get that first knife, that's it. You know, you are pretty much chop, chop, chop to everything. And, you know, I was seeing it earlier. He had, he had to mention like people were complaining about like, oh, you know, the, the hit detection is off and all that and he was trying to say that you know no no you, you, it's based on like, the swing and how you weight your hits and it is very true it is it is very much like that and just I don't know the best part about it for me was like just when you first go down creep down the stairs in the prologue and you hear this really demented version of Silent Night playing you know like that as you're trying to sneak around like and it just set the scene perfectly and that as we discussed before about the way uh, you know those kind of visuals are implemented where it looks very PS1 era sort of thing it was just a lovely late surprise to add to this list you know I you know when I originally wrote everything today that wasn't there and I had to mention it because it is it is great fun I think it goes for about six quid at the minute and it's it's worth it because it has a little story in it too and so it's not without story but um, it feels very different to something like say Murder House hmm. so that makes it even more appealing to me because as somebody that's come to Puppet Combo so late in his you know body of work and whatnot, Murder House being my first exposure to it like we talked about in our episode with uh, Evan Miller it's the type of thing though where it's like okay it's refreshing to hear that a dev is not maybe relying on sort of their horror aesthetic and then delivering the same experience more or less with a new coat of paint as it were Mm -hmm. right it sounds like this is very much of course still coming from a love of horror and that lo-fi aesthetic but it's delivering a different experience which is definitely prom sounds more promising to me and you know i read your review and i obviously enjoyed it and it's the type of thing where i definitely am adding that in addition to my uh to my backlog and i can't wait to check it out hopefully again during the holiday or the uh the new year yeah so from public combo to a public combo published game yeah uh mm. bloodwash that that was Another one that I'd mentioned before when we were talking about um, Murder House uh, that uh, it really spoke to me. Um, it's a very, you know, it's about an hour long. As an experience goes, you basically play a woman whose lousy boyfriend hasn't done the washing and it's really late night and she needs her <laughs> clothing for an interview the next day. So she has to go to the out of town laundrette, you know, place on this little, like, I don't know what you call it, but like, when you've got like a bunch of late night shops together in the middle of fuck fuck nowhere and lo and behold it's very creepy it has that very 
know, that cool atmosphere of a late night thing, you know, where no one else is around, nothing else is really happening, and it almost feels dreamlike that you're even in this situation. And having work nights many a time in my life, um, it spoke to me in that way, you know, it, which, which was amazing in itself. And then, you know, it does go into the usual, like, there's a killer out here and there's this whole story behind why the building next door burned down and like that. So, yeah, it's very typical of, you know, Public Combo Studio games and his own in that regard. But I just think the atmosphere and setting it up is just wonderfully done. I mean, there's a scene in that game where you're, you're literally just riding the bus to that laundrette and this creepy fucker literally comes up to try and sit next to you and it's just <laughs> and you think oh well, that's guy, that guy is going to be like the killer or something and it's no 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 he's just a creepy guy on the bus and that's it <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah it's just for like you know this little one shot hour or so long experience I spent longer because there's like a little TV in the laundrette that you can sort of flip between which has like actual clips of like certain horror movie things and trailers and things mm. and fake ones as well but it just you know, it reminded me so much of like late night TV watching when it was like this secret forbidden thing as a teen. And yeah, I I really, really enjoyed that. That sounds like another example of a game that, you know, it's not so much about the longevity of the experience. It's more about even if it's just an hour mm. or two hours long, right? It's about the fact that it can do something that from the outset kind of looks very simple, but it's able to yes. evoke a lot of atmosphere or just like little narrative moments perhaps that or environmental storytelling moments that it makes it relatable to the player in a way that it's like it was only an hour or two of your gaming the entire year and yet it left a mark on your gaming of the year right yeah it's this thing where i don't know as somebody that again like doesn't have as much time during the week to play games because of whatever life and work and things like that those are the types of games that i definitely want to start seeking out more and more and i think i've made somewhat of an emphasis to try to do that but i mean hearing that an hour or two experience could leave a mark like that that makes it's not your one of your top five games of the year but it's on your honorable mentions and i think that that is one of the biggest praises you give to something that's barely three hours long this is it yeah and you know it's not the only one that i think there that shorter games generally have been like a lovely thing to have i've found it very much with movies this year as well it's just occasionally to have these little breaks where you watch i go back and watch like short films from the 1900s 1910s and stuff just to sort of you know pad out letterbox but also you know see something a bit different and from a different era and it it's proof there that you know you can do this thing in different ways and it doesn't have to be about things that take you 40 hours and that's a relief because personally I find there are fewer and fewer games that I really want to play for that long you know, without you know, the usual sort of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, games like that are a blessing. Which brings me on to Sunshine Manor. Again, another indie game. This was um, kick-started into existence, a sequel to uh, Camp Sunshine, I believe, um, which itself was like an indie hit that kind of traded off the sort of the burning Friday the 13th sort of vibes as a, a game. This one... It's more about like a haunted house, slightly phenomena-esque vibe, you know, to it. You know, you basic bunch of kids go into a cursed house on Halloween. They go in, a couple of them get kidnapped by some malevolent spirit of a children's entertainer that's did a, made a deal with the devil, effectively. 
and then the one remaining girl has like psychic powers and she it's you know it looks visually kind of like an 8-bit game has Undertale like mother you know um, and yeah do basically you know almost Coraline-esque where you jump to these different environments shaped by each of these characters and these demon characters and it's really funny and it's you know it's an RPG as well so there's some depth to it and you exploring the spooky mansion and the more skills you gain you know the more you can access and what you can do and yeah i had a really good time with it i think it was uh, uh, you know you could see the love of horror in that game in so many ways you know it, and it's unapologetic you know in what it does it, it's it's not gonna say oh yeah we're skirting around what we're trying to influence and be influenced by here now it's like no it's all there heart and sleeve and yeah i i really really appreciate it for that that's the one thing i've really loved in doing this podcast is talking about a variety of games but also things that i might not seek out unless we had talked about them Mm. you know specifically you being having such a vast uh, knowledge of like what is new and what's coming out and horror games and things like that but i think that if anything like doing this podcast and getting to talk with a variety of people and their interests and things like that is that and you know it's very much the age-old adage where it's like don't judge a game by its cover just because something looks and you know puppet combo i think has been the biggest eye-opener to me in that regard and that it's not so much how a game looks in terms of the graphical aesthetic or anything like that or maybe potentially limitations in that regard but it's more so about is this does this feel like it is coming from a place of a deep-seated love of horror and whatnot. Yes. Um, and I think that that's something that has definitely shown through the most in a lot of games that we've played or talked about uh, this year. And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I'm more open to experiencing certain types of games than maybe I would have been three or five years ago or something like that. So, you know, it's one of those things where just because if people are listening and they hear something that we mentioned and they're like, they look at it and they're like, well... Oh, I like my games a little more polished or maybe, oh, or maybe mm. I like my games to look a little more indie. It's don't just judge games, how they look based on screenshots or videos, right? It's more about kind of immersing yourself into that experience. And even if it feels fairly familiar, it can do certain things where you're like, okay, this is more in line with maybe my horror sensibilities where you get the sense that like, this is a person that truly understands horror and is not designing this maybe from a place of, well, Hey, uh, pixelated top-down games are hot right now on twitch or whatever type of uh trends might be out there but yeah that's another one that i think i'm definitely gonna definitely gonna add to the list and check out in the new year fantastic again very small studio did great by that uh, which brings me to my next choice i have two more two more i promise um tormented souls which was made by mm-hmm. a south american duo um which very very much a spiritual influence <laughs> successor sort of I suppose to games like Haunting Ground Rule of Rose that sort of era of PS2 horror that wasn't like the mainstream but that other weird fucked up stuff that usually got that now goes for stupid amounts of money because it was banned in certain areas but um, you know and again no apologies made in terms of that uh, for the game it is very much that kind of game where you wake up having given an invitation to this old hospital to find someone you know you end up you get there you end up knocked out wake up in a nude in a bathtub you can tell by me saying that you wake up nude in a bathtub that you are in fact yes of course a female protagonist and that is the 
strange first choice for a scene but then like I said you are going back to that era um, mm. of what things are like and the rest of the time she kind of dresses like an anime girl and looks a bit like an anime girl which is a bit weird compared to the rest of the game because it looks like your PS2 era you know, fixed camera survival horror but once you get past that um, as a game it's one of the more faithful throwbacks you know it, it, it understands what it is going back to you know the, the kind of puzzles it has the you know the history behind the building you're in and stuff like that the enemies can be really fucked up you know there's some really cool enemies one of the first ones you meet is like in a wheelchair and carrying has like scissory arms and like whilst that feels a little generic in some ways you know like yeah if, if you could like sort of dream something off the top of your head yeah wheelchair bound monsters with scissor hands is like as 2000s horror as you could get but still I think it does a really good job at replicating that era and considering it's such a, a small development team it's all the more impressive to me that they did it it's transgressions are certainly nowhere near as bad as say the mediums where you have a bigger studio with more input where they could have maybe avoided some of those questionable decisions and right. here at least you can argue that they are informed by a certain type of game so yeah I think there's plenty there to like and I think it deserves you know success based on that because I think you know there's something there with, with that developer whether they, they can really do something even greater with, with more support more budget that uh, keeps in the vein of this sort of thing maybe with lessons learned from what did and didn't work here I'll say that game is definitely at the top of my list for something to tackle during the holiday break. Like mm. that is at the very top just because of a lot of the reasons that you spoke on and like it feeling like a spiritual successor or heavily influenced by an era of like PS2 horror games, kind of the more weirder side, less mainstream. Yeah. But at the same time, like in, you know, looking at screenshots and watching a video or two here and there about it. Like, it just, it feels like Resident Evil's weirder cousin in yeah. a way that's very, very appealing to me. Weirder in the sense that it's, it seems more darker, less traditional in terms of, like, shambling zombies and whatnot. Um, in terms of kind of, like, the fucked up monsters. But also, like, I saw one of the puzzles, you find, like, a corpse that's in rigor mortis and the body is clutching something that you need. And you have to, like, find a battery to hook up to it so that way you can mm. give it a jolt so it releases the puzzle piece or something like yes. that. And, you know, it's one of those things that... It sounds very Resident Evil, but just those little adaptations on it being like something that is uh, equally gruesome, but maybe a little more grounded instead of finding like a, uh, I don't know, a, a chimera puzzle piece or something yes. like that for the dozens time. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like something that's kind of right up my alley, even if maybe there are some elements of it that it sounds like are more indicative of some of the cringier aspects of game development from that period. Yeah. But overall, it sounds like that it does a better job of being a faithful continuation or homage as, as it were yeah. than uh, some of the the plethora that we're inundated with every year. Yeah, I think that there's a very unique perspective taken here that, that understands what they're going for. And that's that there have been so many that have tried to replicate that era of survival horror and failed, I, I find. You know, the best ones either learn exactly what's needed or they take it in a whole different direction and just take the aesthetic puppet combo being a great example of that yeah. where it's like it looks like those games it isn't they aren't like those games you know it's just it's a feeling 
of nostalgia you're getting just from the visuals rather than from what the game plays like. So yeah, it's good in that regard. So last game on the honourable mentions list is In Sound Mind, which I think I brought up when we were talking with Andrew King about um, you know these kind of first-person horror games where you're largely defenseless. And I said, you know, there's aspects of that here. Um, but it feels like an anthology, you know, of that idea, you know, where you you are this psychiatrist going into different minds and you, you know, they are visualised as these, you know, mani- you know, there are manifestations of the patient that, that are very messed up and that, and it works out like that, that, you know, each boss encounter, if you will, ends up being this strange, uh, you know, very particular, very unique thing for that. There's a level very late on where you have this uh, you know, war veteran with PTSD and you're going ahead into his mind and, you know, it's set in, like, the woods and he's, like, this tall, striderous, like, creature with, like, a sniper rifle for a face, you know, like, it's just... It's a really cool... And, you know, you're trying to avoid the rifle and this is the idea. And it... Stuff like that just feels so different from the rest of the things you experience. And, you know, whilst still, you know, very much keeping close to what we've expected from first-person horror in recent years... The sort of smorgasbord approach to it works for the story they're telling, you know, and all the same, you know, the protagonist is also suffering from their own problem, which is less, you know, psychological and more. He literally has a demon in his head trying to take over him and is just continually fucking with him constantly to make sure that happens whilst all this is going on. So, yeah, it's it's a very striking game in that regard. Um, you play the first sort of level of it, you know, uh, stage of it, and it seems very much like every other thing. But it, it definitely gets better as it goes on from there. And the soundtrack is just grand. You know, it has some really sort of crunchy, metal-y sort of stuff in there. Um, I forget the name of the person who does it. It's like a YouTube guy that does some really cool stuff. Uh, I, if I remember at the end of the episode, I'll remember it then because I was obviously sat here waiting for several minutes trying to find it um so yes in sound mind very good time enjoyed that very much so that is the end of that list of honorable mentions lots of stuff for me to add and to check up in the new year and again this is very much tip of the iceberg there was stuff i will not get into because for various reasons it's just like we'll be here all day but some of those things might pop up in the new year in some of our episodes right because that's kind of the beauty of this podcast is that yeah we cover anniversaries of bigger horror titles or uh, sort of prolific horror franchises and things like that but at the same time we've been talking about you know behind the scenes and whatnot things that we could talk about that we missed that maybe didn't get the love that they deserved at launch and so that's a whole new chapter that we're going to start next year and just tackling you know indie games that we missed but also you know continuing to reach out to guests and people like that having them on to share their opinion on stuff that maybe you and i haven't even heard of or things that they have an appreciation for and in talking with them you know that's the beauty of this and talking with people giving us maybe a newfound appreciation for something that we overlooked that maybe we didn't uh jive with right away those types of things so you know it's it's always worth mentioning things even if it's not in great depth because there's always the potential to expand on that in the future yeah this is it and that, that was the great importance of doing this it was to sort of I mean, it feels like the first year i could really do that you know and I, mm. like i said i think safe room has really helped me appreciate 
these sort of games more and more. And like I said, that's why there's such a pleasing variety to the sort of things, you know, the things I've mentioned just there, some very different things that while they have connected tissue, you know, they, they make up a very exciting bunch. So, you know, learning from that, you'll probably understand some of the games that will be featuring in my top five as a result, but, you know, it's all about the order and, uh, <laughs> or if they were there at all. <laughs> well, that's the other thing too, I think that I'll say before we dive into our top five, mm. like I, I reluctantly am always like, okay, everything that's on my top five are my top five because these are the five games I've enjoyed the year, um, the most over the year. Mm. But at the same time, like, just don't let anybody get too attached to the numbers, right? Because that's never what this show will be about no. in terms of like, oh, well, you should have had that be number three or something like that. You know what I mean? Like the the uh, difficulty of juggling our games of the year with numbers, it's one of those things like you kind of have to just prescribe numbers to it yes. for clarity's sake. But at the same time, like not putting in an, an incredible amount of emphasis on the number itself other than of course the game of the year yeah which um, um, but, yeah in, in this case you know i've already made the caveat about Deathloop. um mm-hmm. for me personally my number one was easy after that it just made sense yeah. you know the rest was yep. had its caveats but um yeah it, it's something so the way we're going to do this um is basically back and forth where jay will say his number five i will say mine um, if someone else has that game later in the list, we'll save talk about it until we're both talking about it. If someone, you know, if say if I say a game and Jay doesn't have it, then I will talk about it in general. And but yeah, you know how it goes. And so, Jay, what we're going to do? You know, we'll structure this. It's going to be drawn out because you know that's the best way to do this. Five games are going to take forever because we're going to do <laughs> our fives, our fours. Then we're going to take a little break, talk about our favorite first time playthrough from this year in the spirit of doing safe route. Then we'll do our three, then we'll do our two. Then before we do our game of the year each, uh, we will do our listeners sort of mentions, you know, things they said, that their game of the year, things that they were surprised by. And then, yeah, game of the year and some other stuff. So with that in mind, Jay, What's your number five? So my number five is the Alan Wake remaster by Remedy. Um, That was one of those games that I was not expecting to enjoy nearly as much as I did. Um, And, you know, there's a certain amount of significance I place on that in terms of it being this year's, I think, pristine example of being what a remaster should be. You know, it really cleans up a lot of the issues that I had, you know, performance wise, also in terms of when it was originally released. Mm. But also, it was this type of thing where it's a game that's finally getting its true comeuppance, and it was getting the conversation around the remaster that really was missing when the game was initially released, and it's finally sort of getting that love that it deserved, and it being more than just sort of this niche kind of weird uh, horror title that, you know, mainstream publications talked about because, you know, it's a remedy game, but then it didn't feel like it was getting the amount of not respect on its name but just in terms of like it being more than just like this kind of kooky genre Mm. title um it is definitely one of my favorite experiences of the year just because it gave me a newfound appreciation for it that even you know i wasn't uh 
I wasn't blameless in being of the, the type of person that played it when it came out. And I was like, ah, you know, I'm enjoying this for what it is, kind of, but there's a lot of little elements of it that I'm not jiving with in terms of the performance. Also, you know, maybe I found that it didn't do quite enough in terms of the gameplay of it deviating from kind of exactly what you'd expect yeah. of it being this third-person shooter and whatnot. But I think in playing it, and, you know, not only did it not really need a remaster from a visual side of things, because it still looks great uh, in terms of the original release, but it just sort of elevated it that much more in boosting, obviously, the graphics of it. But I think that getting to play it and not having the same sort of hiccups really aids that episodic nature of it, right? Because, again, I think I reviewed it back in the day when it was originally released as well. So that kind of marred my my, uh, experience a little bit, maybe. Yeah. Just in terms of like, okay, I have to like power through this, whereas in playing it for the podcast, I had more time. So that episodic structure, I think, really made it that much smoother of an experience for me because I kind of could plot it out in that it's like, okay, each chapter takes maybe two hours or something. Mm. So throughout the course of the week leading up to that, I had a week or more to play it. It wasn't this thing where I had like a two or three day turnaround, which is funny in retrospect. We kind of (laughs) talked about that with Harrison, I think, and people should go back and listen to our episode with uh, Harrison Abbott, who's our guest. And we kind of talked a little bit about like the process of reviewing things and tackling games in such a short amount of time and how in revisiting some games like now it's I think a decade later a decade plus in revisiting Alan Wake it's the type of thing where it's like when you let it breathe a little bit that episodic nature really not only informs but I think that it is the quintessential narrative kind of style for that that just further exemplifies a lot of the uh, storytelling or world building that Remedy does in a lot of their games in a way that it all fits nicely into this uh, very much weird horror package, but I think I walked away from it being more pleasantly surprised that it is so unapologetic in its weirdness, and yet that weirdness really informs everything from, obviously, the world building and the stories and the characters, but the gameplay even, too. Yeah. And I think that it it juggles that light mechanic in a way that we obviously talked about in our episode with Harrison, but... That is not so much a gimmick as it's taking a tool and making it viable in both a defensive and offensive capability from gameplay perspective, which is something that, you know, I would have thought we would see a lot more games copying. And I'm sure there have been other games in that space that have adapted something like that or similar. But I was surprised that that was not much more of a prevalent sort of gameplay mechanic moving forwards in a lot of sort of horror games not just light but in terms of taking a mechanic that could be both defensive and offensive and really being as central to the gameplay in moment to moment rather than maybe okay here's a big story milestone or fight milestone you're gonna have to use this mechanic that you kind of fall back on yeah Uh, so it's gonna make me sound like a snob now because i didn't pick it at all because uh it's a remake remaster so it remastered remakes i can handle you know on that front um so yeah i won't be mentioning that so that's fine um but all the same i will chime in and say that yes it was lovely to play it almost as was intended you know the, the optimal experience of that game where there's no compromise for the frame rate and the way things are i mean the cutscenes are still a bit mm, here and there with that but i think it lends to it 
perfectly. You know, it feels like this big old hammy Stephen King inspired story and Dee Koontz inspired story as well. You know, that um, the sort of stuff I grew up on and I really reveled in it. And it took me ages to play anyway. I, I think we mentioned then I played it like a couple of years before for the first time, having wanted to play it for ages. And because I didn't have an Xbox before that. And so, yeah, it's quickly become one of those games that I've really cherished. And so as a result, I was like everyone else who loves Alan Wake. It was so, so happy to see that sequel announcement at the Game Awards. You know, it, it was it just felt so right and deserved. And yeah, it's a fantastic game in its own right. And yeah, if I was including games like that, yeah, absolutely. It would be up there, up there for me. Um, so my number five, I guess might be higher up in yours, so we may not talk about it yet, but uh, Resident Evil Village. It's like, okay, so it's like, when we get to it, that's when we'll talk about it. So then we'll go back to you for number four. Sure, my number four is If on a Winter's Night for Travelers Ooh. by developer uh, Dead Idol Games. It's a point-and-click narrative-driven adventure okay. uh, with horror elements that explores the stories of four characters in a masked ball that takes place aboard a train in the late 1920s. Um, if people are interested, before I delve into uh, sort of talking about it in a little more depth without spo- necessarily spoiling things, uh, it is actually free on Steam. It's a, uh, a roughly a two-hour experience um, that tackles a masquerade ball that's on a train that then kind of deviates into three uh, vignettes that tie all the characters together in a way that dabbles in a lot of the sort of it not overt horror uh, out from the outset, but it is more about like the macabre kind of gothic horror in a lot of ways. Mm. I would almost attribute its aesthetic to something like uh, Crimson Peak in a way where it's more about how grief and trauma and those things kind of are the undoing of people or the fuel for certain decisions that they make rather than really like boogeyman moments or things like that. Um, Like the first uh, vignette is the silent room, which deals with these two lovers that are in a conflict. The second one, which I think is probably my second favorite of the vignettes is the slow vanishing of Lady Winterborn, which is about this woman that is basically an aristocrat that is in this house that this like luxurious mansion and there's been some sort of accident and it's her uncovering what that accident was whether it was her own or somebody that she was close to she finds that she thinks that people are like plotting against her and it very much has sort of like a yellow wallpaper vibe to it Um, but I think that that is probably the best example of why this game is such a standout narratively speaking because the only part that I'll really delve into is like there, this character is self-medicating with a, uh, a type of drug, like I think it's called Laudum or something. But the way in which that that drug addiction plays out from a visual standpoint is that like the game begins with her waking up and she's walking around her mansion and it's very uh, there's like a storm outside. Everything in the house is like covered up and whatnot with like uh, blankets and things like that. And you don't really have a sense of what's going on. It's very confusing. And then as soon as you sort of self-medicate, the world changes and reflects that. Um, And so that is a great indication, I think, of this game's strongest storytelling mechanic, which is the world begins to reflect the person's inner turmoil and whatnot. And I think that narratively speaking, again, it's a point and click, so you're very familiar, obviously, with the limitations of that and things like that. But 
I think that from a storytelling standpoint, um, this is a game that has left a huge impact on me just in terms of furthermore reinforcing that the horror medium, no matter how a game might look visually or maybe limitations of the genre that it's in, is not always an indication of a hindrance on its storytelling ability because you get three to four very different, very interesting stories with characters that feel fleshed out, again, for being a two-hour experience. I didn't walk away from any one vignette and feel that, okay, I wish I had known more or this wasn't yeah. as fleshed out as I'd want it to be. Um, and I think that that's probably one of the biggest compliments I can pay to a game that is maybe a little longer than two hours, if that. Um, and it's, you know, the cost is yeah. your time at this point because it's a free game. So you can either get that through Steam for Windows or Mac, or you can go through uh, the itch.io yeah. store. Which is always preferable, I find, in, in those situations. Because yeah. you can always kick them back a bit of money in, in most cases. That's the thing, yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that surprised me because that not even on my radar so that, that's great that now oh, I've got something to sort of look back on and uh, have a go at over them I'm paying, it, I'm paying it forward for a change that's it. <laughs> that's it you know but this is the wonderful thing about this you know we can mm-hmm. you know we'll say this now you know me and Jay didn't discuss what we were going to put in our top fives before this you know so I had no idea that this was going to be a thing you know much as I didn't have any idea that Alan Wake would be in, in there so it, this is great to, to have that. I mean, quietly during that little, uh, what you were saying, I was wish listing on Steam to remember it for later. Um, though I will go for it you know, when the time comes. I'll say that um, if for whatever reason people would prefer to do it on Steam, it is free through Steam, but you have the option of buying the um, deluxe edition, mm. which is a couple of dollars, which includes some, I think, a soundtrack and some art goodies or something. But if you for whatever reason, prefer to use Steam, there's still a way to support the developer uh, through that platform mm. if someone were to choose that. But yeah, I think, I mean, uh, itch.io is obviously the preferred because you can kick them however much you feel it's worth. And, you know, it's the type of thing where it's one of the games that left the biggest impact on me from a narrative standpoint this year. You know, it's two hours, which, you know, is a caveat for some people. It's not for us, but some people might be. But at the same time, I think that it is definitely a game that deserves something. Don't. Yeah. That's the thing. You know, you have the option for free and it's very easy to be like, oh, you know, I'll just, it's not very long. I'll just take it for free. But I think that if we want to keep getting games like this that really do step outside of maybe the conventional storytelling or some horror games maybe would prefer to rest on their gameplay rather than the narrative. If we want to keep getting games that are pushing the medium in interesting and a variety of perspectives and character-driven things like that, I think it's definitely important to support them even if they say, hey, you can get this for free. Kick them a few bucks even if you can. You know, it's the uh, the age-old adage of, uh, you know, how much is a uh, is a is a meal at a fast food place? Like, kick them that if that's what you can afford, you know? It's the type of thing where if they leave it up to the player and whatnot, you know, kick them five bucks or something at the very least because otherwise we're, it's... <laughs> Game development, if we've uh, learned anything, can be hell and is not the most profitable thing, especially for indies. And I believe this is a team of two people uh, over at uh, Dead Idol Games. Kick them a few bucks because I definitely want to play more from them. So something to think about. Which um, brings me very succinctly to my number four, which is Spookware, which um, I mentioned the original Spookware in my honorable mentions last year on Bloody Disgusting. 
but that is basically like a teaser for this, if you will, because it is just like, you know, the the mini game, micro game aspect of that, you know. Um, so to explain, Spookware is WarioWare, but spooky. And <laughs> that's, that's the thing. And in the original short version of this, uh, it featured as a standalone sort of game jam thing and then featured in one of DreadXP's DreadX collections uh, as a segment. And both of those things sort of gel into this game, which is now an RPG, effectively. You know, it um, tells its own story and the, the micro games much like WarioWare, you know, where you have like these games that go on for a few seconds, you have to do a certain task, whatever, and yeah, and you do a bunch of those in succession without failing more than a couple of times or it's game over and you have to start again on that section. Uh, yeah, but here, it just takes that to a whole new level, which is phenomenal to me. Um, so developer, Beeswax Games... Dread XP, uh, they are the publisher of this. You know, they've done some grand work in, in that regard. And so it centers on the Skillabros, uh, a trio of skeleton brothers dossing about in the afterlife in a basement, watching horror movies all the time. They've run out of horror movies to watch on VHS finally and decide that they're going to go on a life affirming road trip to sort of learn more about life outside of that. And each sort of section, you know, of Spookware takes place in a different scenario. You know, like they go to high school for the first one, you know, to sort of get the high school experience and graduate from high school, which entails them learning how to be part of the school band for the end of year sort of celebration. And, you know, so that entails doing little mini games there to to get to that point. But then, you know, you have this bongo minigame. You basically become the bongo player of the school band, having, like, <laughs> face-offs against the other members of the school band with their instrument to sort of beat them in this rhythm action minigame. And that in itself was, like, a great start. And I just the idea that they just breeze through graduation by winning a battle of the bands with a fucking pair of bongos is just the best idea. <laughs> Just this grand delusion these brothers have about how they are really just services the whole game. And I will point this out now. This is technically only the first part of the entire game, but I think there is so much to it that I've included it here, you know, because there are three distinct sections here that uh, you get in the first part, and the next is coming next year. So you'll probably see this game again next year at some point, I, I imagine. But um, the bit that stands out for me, I mean, the chapter ends, and I, I'm saying this now because the middle bit is what I want to concentrate on the most. The bit at the end is like a, you go on a cooking show and you do all this stuff like that. And you basically say it, it follows the same plan pretty much as the Battle of the Bands thing with the bongos. It's absurd but Trite does the same thing, great stuff. The mini games are great because they take like these weird stock images of stuff and piece them together to make this really shitty looking version of WarioWare on purpose, I might add. Right. And that is the great quality of the original version and this version. 
but the middle part is honestly one of the best things I've played in any game all year. Okay, um, basically the brothers end up sneaking away onto a cruise liner um, and end up in a murder mystery. Okay, and I don't want to spoil too much because it is just really, really fucking great to play yourself, I think. But it plays so well with the absurdism that they're already dead. They're already skeletons themselves. At the fact that you're having a murder mystery is stupid, you know, because, <laughs> but it works because you basically are then suddenly you turn it, it turns into Ace Attorney and you are like trying to f- compile evidence and accuse people based on the evidence you find and using the mini game mechanics that we've already had. This mi- sorry, micro game, I keep getting that distinction, but it, it's insane how good that section is on its own. That section is why I even put it here. You know, it's like if that was all it was, I'd put it here because I, mm. I think it is so damn good that it deserves to be here. It really does something that just struck me. You know, it's like it's not especially deep, maybe when you really think about it, but it's the way it handles it. It essentially takes the piss out of games like Ace Attorney, which ironically I was playing the Ace Attorney Chronicles at that point, which is like this sort of historic throwback, but it did the, um, the yellow band, like the strike band thing, uh, a Sherlock Holmes story as a, like a plot point where you're on a a boat where you get accused Mm. of murder. You must, try and prove how you didn't do it because of this, this, and this. It does that in its own really ridiculous way with these people, you know, these three brothers whose only life before this was to be living in a basement watching horror movies, and that's how they plan their deductions. And it just... I know it's not strictly horror in the sense of, like, oh, there's no scares, but, you know, it's what it does with that, you know... the mini games and micro games, sorry, have horror. The story, you know, is about the afterlife. Fuck it, it deserves it. It deserves to be in there. It is just a fantastic little piece of game there in its own right, and everyone should absolutely try that if you want something that. I don't know, Paper Mario comes to mind. You know, when I, when I think mm. of like RPG stuff, it's like that sort of style. Mm-hmm. but on an indie budget and it's honestly just staggering how well they've managed to do that it, it, you know, full applause there because they've taken a, a basic concept and really rolled with that and there could be more of it and while I think they would be very hard to sort of top that moment I'm very much looking forward to that well, it sounds like a lot of what we talked about at the beginning of the show, this idea of like the variety of horror experiences and the idea that all of that variety can be applied to one game and not only reach across tones, but of gameplay experiences within one game. Like, and, you know, WarioWare and adapting on that in a with a horror sensibility that is more about just like a love of the genre rather than scares in general. I mean, that's a no, that sounds like a no-brainer and the fact that it works as well as it does for you is remarkable in that because you're su- I would be surprised that somebody hasn't thought, you know, horror aside, like that we haven't gotten more WarioWare styled games mm. that get even weirder perhaps in certain regards 
than WarriorWare did, right? And I think that applying that weird sensibility to a specific genre that is accessible, I believe, I mean, it's, what is it, a T-rated game, if that, any, yeah, at best, right? And it's, it's, an, it's a horror experience that is open to a wider pool of potential horror fans that kind of just ties into that party game potentially aesthetic, right? Of like getting, pe- it's, it sounds to me like it's the type of horror experience that you could introduce to people that either A, aren't in love with the genre or something that you would show people that maybe aren't necessarily into games the way that we might be, right? Because it's kind of like, oh, well, there's the potential, even if it's not a couch co-op or whatever from the outset, it's this idea that it's like if somebody were to just sit down and watch you play a round of mini games, and then you go, oh, do you want to try something? Because it's completely random, right? In terms of the mini games and things like that. It's the type of thing, or uh, micro games. It just sounds like an experience that provides a variety of gameplay experiences within the realm of horror that sounds maybe a little more welcoming than uh, some of the more hardcore options, which I love that that's on your list because, you know, I guess it could be very easy to load up a list of game of the years in regards to horror of like, oh, these are the scariest or these are the goriest, but that's not really... No. At least for me, I want that variety in my list, but also it's great to have a game within a game that has so much variety in the realm of horror. Yeah, I mean, you should be able to give as much love to a brain dead, dead alive as you do to The Shining, you know, in terms of like mm. being an iconic horror film. You know, it, it, yeah. Here in game terms, I believe the same. It's like, it doesn't have to be scary, it can be funny. Right. It can take the idea of horror and make it this absurd thing and I think there's an underlying plot there that is going to be kind of dark to it you know like with the mini games themselves if you fail them consistently you get this weird sort of goat skull thing offering you the chance to sort of skip a (laughs) a particular one of those mini games if they piss you off too much and Mm. it sort of implies the idea that you know you'll there's a cost to that down the line and I like that and I like that sort of tease that's there in that and I, I think that's going to be really important going down the line for that but in the meantime ridiculously good and very very funny you know like even in games outside of horror I don't think there's a name that was as funny to me as this game was you know it, it just really just tapped into something sunshine manor was pretty close at, at times but this yeah it got it you know and fantastic so we've got through the first two games um we're gonna take a little break from our top fives here and we are going to briefly ish talk about our favorite first time playthrough from the last year you know we've um you know, safe room has done one thing for us i think especially well it's made us try games for the first time and appreciate them through someone else's eyes maybe you know and ears and mouth and here we are and Jay you know the, the order we're going in please tell me what, what game for you has been a favourite first time experience from 2021 so the game that I think I've come to far too late in my uh, my gaming history as it were but I was very fortunate enough to have the chance to chat about it with you and uh, a guest, Matt Jordan, uh, for the podcast was Silent Hill 2. Mm. That is a game that I think about probably on a weekly basis. And it's not in terms of like 
gameplay moments or anything like that, but it's just the types of storytelling that you can actually have in games. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a lot about storytelling in games and how it's evolved so much over the last decade or two decades and whatnot and the types of stories you can tell. Yeah. But a lot of the time it feels like that conversation happens and there's only two or three games a year that maybe you could say that about. Yes. Um, from at least my uh, my view of the gaming landscape and things like that. And to play a game 20 years after its release and to have it be more impactful than anything I've played probably in the last five years, give or take maybe a handful of titles, mm. um, I think is an incredible quality to that game. And while the gameplay itself isn't what comes to mind first when thinking about Silent Hill 2, the range of emotions that it's able to evoke and not just from not just from like plot points like, oh, a character died that I liked or I was sad to see this character perish or something to that effect. It's more about just the raw emotion that that game is able to evoke and discuss yes. and the taboo topics that, you know, it's in hindsight, right? They talked about a lot of taboo subject matter in that game around mental health, around certain things like that. Um, and I think that it's such a mature game in terms of its storytelling. And nothing I'm saying about Silent Hill 2 is uh, revelatory in the <laughs> sense that, like, yeah, lots of people have been talking about this game for a very long time. But for me, I can't think of another game that I came to this year that has left a bigger impact on me from a storytelling and from a narrative perspective. And it's something that has made me want to go back and, you know, over the Christmas break, I'm planning on playing Resident, uh, Silent Hill 3. See, I can't believe I just <laughs> almost mixed up with Resident Evil. But uh, it's the type of thing, though, where I'm not expecting anything in the Silent Hill series to top two. But it's something that has kind of reinvigorated my need to go back and play the titles in this series that I've missed, specifically three and four. Um, it's something that, again, I think about on at least a weekly basis and it makes me want to go back and replay it just to kind of pick up on some of the nuances I missed, but also, you know, the branching paths and whatnot yeah. um, and decision making that you can make in that, uh, however limited that might be. But I think just in terms of a game that is able to, it's rare that I play games that actually treat the player as if they are an adult in the subject matter it deals with and... While, you know, there's some wonky voice acting and whatnot, uh, which we talked about, it doesn't change the fact that they're having very real world conversations yeah. in a way that I think still eludes games in a lot of ways. You know, there have been plenty of games, I think, that take big swings that don't necessarily always hit. There have also been games like Silent Hill 2 that have succeeded in that regard. Yeah. But I think that, again, like for me personally, thinking about the last 20 years of playing games when to when that game was released... It is one of very few that I think has treated the player with, maybe I don't know about respect, but it just, it, it treats the player like they're an adult playing an adult story that's tailored for adults in a way that yeah. it doesn't feel like it is pulling punches because it's a video game. You know, I think that a lot of games that I play that try to approach mature storytelling or it's either too over the top or it pulls its punches at certain points because it's like well we got to remind them it's a game and it's all fun uh but i just find that when studios maybe try to deviate from that maturity for brief sprints yeah. it kind of undercuts what they're doing whereas with silent hill 2 that game i feel it stays on its very weird beats but at the same time it never really loses sight of the fact that like we're telling a 
very clearly tailored for mature audience story. And it never really deviates from that. You know, again, you can talk about the kind of like wonky voice work or awkward moments and whatnot. But I think about a lot of moments in that game that I initially was like, well, that's just weird. But there's a symbolism that ties Mm. it all together or there's something about it that ties into the protagonist's journey or his history and whatnot. And, you know, it's the type of thing I definitely want to go back and I I forget what the DLC was, but there's a DLC where um, you get to play as... Lost in Nightmares, is that it? Yes, I think that that sounds right. Yeah, either Lost in Nightmares or Shattered Memories or something like that. Apologies if I got that wrong. Shattered Memories was the... uh, the, the portable game, I think, that Sam Barlow did. But, uh, yeah. It's the type of thing, though, that, like, there. I want to go and play 3 and 4 for the first time, but I want to return and play the DLC for 2, because even if it's only an hour or two experience, I'm willing to bet that it is designed with that same sensibility in mind in terms of fleshing out this very uh, taboo and mature narrative in a way that further complements kind of just the fact that it still has an approach to storytelling that I think is largely unrivaled in a lot of ways. And I now see that it's, and again, you know, this is me coming to it 20 years late, but it's the type of thing where you hear a lot about like, well, these are some of the hallmarks of either horror or gaming in general. And sometimes when I get to those types of games where you hear that praise or that chatter about them, you're like, well, how much of this is really just the rose tinted glasses effect with silent Hill too. It was largely not that type of experience for me. It was very much, a lot of the praise that I've heard of this and the the complexity of the things that it dabbles in are incredibly well-earned and, you know, in some cases maybe aren't praised quite as heavily in terms of how ahead of the time it was, but just that it has earned all of that praise uh, that I've at least been hearing about for a large part of my uh, my gaming history and was very relieved and, uh, and it was satisfying to find that it was well-earned. Yeah, I mean... I think of uh, when we were talking to Raina last week um, and uh, she was saying about playing uh, House of Ashes to sort of try and hit that high that she got with Until Dawn uh, and unfortunately it turns out she didn't get that high with that um, as it turns out but that's how Silent Hill has felt since then and that's why people are so excited the idea of any new Silent Hill is the idea that maybe this time this time we'll get that high and it's really hard because yeah. I mean with Until Dawn I think no offence to that you know that's a lower lower bar to sort of hit this Silent Hill 2 is just you were saying earlier about how you know how it is to the player but to me if I could describe how it feels to the player, it's almost like a disdain. You know, it's like it doesn't care if you don't get it, you know, or if you don't want to get it. it it's, it's there. It, it shrugs its shoulders and says, well, this is what we're doing. You don't get it, that's on you. And increasingly, a game like Silent Hill 2 just isn't going to work for the majority of the game audience of now because... You know, it's, you know, about a very different thing. You know, it's horribly, especially in the big game space, into the idea of the same thing as movies are now, where there's this big grandiose talk about movies that don't really have a lot to say, but they've got the budget, they've got 
the characters, they've got the branding, and that's it. And Silent Hill, yeah, Silent Hill is going to suffer, whatever it does. Kojima's, ironically, probably the only one that would save it from that, because he in himself is part of that sort of dynamic that we have now, where, you know, we are sort of worshipping at the altar of the deities of production. And he's you know, key amongst those. And you know, I make no apologies there to say that I am one of those people that believe in him in that regard. But yeah, it, it's a shame, but it makes Silent Hill 2 so much more special. And for me, going back to it for the first time in so many years, you know, this year, you know, it was almost akin to you know how you experienced it, where you you know coming for mm. the first time, it just it felt so much more meaningful, so much more impactful, you know, as a game and as an experience. And probably because I experienced a few more of the things that had influenced it, you know, like Twin Peaks, you know, like mm. and the like that really got to the core of you know, the influences of that game and. Yeah, so it, it made more sense to me. And that's just life, you know? It's like, if you feel like there's something big and important and meaningful that didn't really connect with you at a certain time because you didn't have the reference points, maybe, you know, try it again because it will get there. And I said this on our episode on Silent Hill 2. I think even with the state of Silent Hill 2 as it is now and what you can get that game on and how it isn't the perfect version of that game it's still despite those problems manages to outstrip so many stories because it doesn't you know chase the the holy dollar you know it it goes for (laughs) it sounds wanky but it goes for artistic value you know It, it really knows it knows what it wants to do it's aching to tell you a story that isn't simplistic and I love it for that and it can feel goofy it can feel stupid it can feel weird and there could be things you question but ultimately it makes you think you know and that is always key to why this game keeps getting mentioned you know like there's this base level of like pyramid head oh wonderful yeah oh like creepy monsters like that stuff and then there's this whole other thing you know where it and silent hill as it has been handled since feels like the base level you know it's like the understanding is like oh yeah yeah we'll include all this stuff that's what people want it's like no 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 you're not understanding it like you're not understanding why this is important yeah silent hill 2 is just phenomenal and like I said, for you to play it for the first time, for me to play it for the first time in 20-odd years this year, it, it really was revelatory. And it makes me excited to tackle it for the second time, which I have a feeling I'll walk away with it from it with just even more of an appreciation mm. for it. Because now, you know, I can't imagine going through it now with context and getting a greater appreciation or further my understanding of things. And, you know, your point about, like, the disdain for the audience, I completely co-sign in terms of just its approach to those things. And I think what I meant more was that it's unabashed in its tackling yes. uncomfortable subject matter. And that's an incredibly brave storytelling thing, uh, storytelling element 
that I still don't think a lot of developers will again uh, will approach because you know they there seems to be an, the tendency to undercut troubling subject matter with something that alleviates the mood, which I think is a great disservice, especially in narrative games that dabble in real world topics. Yes, um, I think that that's something that a lot of games have a tendency to not a lot, but maybe some games have a tendency to do to almost kind of soften the blow of this uncomfortable subject matter. Whereas Silent Hill 2's dedication to facing that uncomfortable subject matter face on is why we're talking about mm-hmm. it the way we're talking about it 20 years later, which I don't know that we'll be saying for a lot of games that attempt something similar, but you know, it, I'm looking for very much forward to continuing my uh, journey into the series, but also in revisiting two in the future. Yeah. Um, so my pick was, you know, very much a counterpoint to your pick where it was a, a first time for me, not so much for you. Uh, it was Condemned Criminal Origins, which we only covered mm. a few weeks ago. Um, you know, <laughs> in that time, Monolith for now revealed as being working on a, a Wonder Woman game. We were wondering in that episode saying, I was like, God, no, it's been so many years since they did the last uh, Middle Earth game hopefully they're doing something else they're doing that cool but Criminal Origins is just you know it's like nowadays when you get like this up and coming director will do something really exciting in a film and then they get thrust into doing big old licensed Marvel stuff maybe and that's pretty much what it feels like with Monolith now it's like they did this really exciting strange deranged not entirely coherent thing and it still remains one of the most exciting works yeah and that's the best thing about Condemned it it just seems like something you would not get anywhere else it feels like that if you were to put a signature on a studio Monolith's signature would be condemned more than it would be Middle Earth, more than it would be Wonder Woman, because that's them doing their own thing, making their own story with their own rules, flaws and all. It's brilliant in that regard. You know, it, it yeah, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but who, who the fuck cares about perfect? You know, it, right. it, it doesn't have to be perfect. When you make something that wholly unique, why does it have to be perfect? They're taking swings that yeah, nobody else would dare it. dream a majority of the time to take. That's it. And I, you know, I don't want to take up a lot of time here because we've got so much to talk about still. But you know, I think that was the greatest joy about really finally playing it. I've you know, mistaken anything I had played it. Was to discover that it was... Uh, I discussed at the top of this episode about um, Werewolf the Apocalypse Earthblood and how it had this repetitive feel to it. Like, you know, funnily enough, this game has a bit of that, but there's, I don't know, acknowledgement of that. It knows it's that, where I don't think Werewolf knows that (laughs) in the same way. And so you get these little moments that aren't quite in keeping and it plays into the absurdity of certain moments, you know, and uh, certain enemy types and certain scenarios. And it becomes this, like I said at the time, 
the most James Wan Lee Wannell joint that we, we never got <laughs> as a video game. Right. And yeah, the more I think about it, the more it, but I believe that's the case. I think it's a marvelous game that has very much cemented its place in, in my heart as being one of those games I love and adore and will continue to reference as you know, those things that aren't typically horror necessarily, you know, when, when you think about it, but there's so much about it that just feels right, you know, that really mm. gets it, that really nails the idea of like horror isn't just about scares, it's about the dread, it's about the atmosphere, it's about the, mm. the, the place you're in. And it does, it, it does all of those things. It, it's like, like a James Wan doing Hitchcock, you know, it's like the framed man in the wrong place at the wrong time having to fight his way to prove his innocence. That's basically what it is as a game. You know, I love what Wan does, I love what Hitchcock does, and I love what Monolith does in this video game. It's the type of thing, too, like, their next thing being Wonder Woman, like, I'm not necessarily thrilled about that, but I'm thrilled for Monolith, the developer, because they're getting that bag, and obviously that is much more profitable for them as a studio. I would love to see them return to the more niche titles that they made that were more unique and that were more in line with my genre interests, but at the same time, I'm happy for them that they can continue to thrive in a way that... To be honest, they might not be able to if they were continuing to make the types of games that you and I want. It's the same thing where you hope that in them securing these much bigger IPs and, you know, the eyeballs that that gets and the budget and the studio backing and things like that or publisher backing, that they will be in a place where they can finally say, like, well, we've made now three of these massive IP games in the last however many years. We can take a step back and not have to think about numbers for a change with, you know that's the dream right is that every three of these big projects they make maybe them as a studio are able to say like we're going to take we're going to make one for us now and we're going to make one for the smaller pool of genre fans that want those types of games even if it's not nearly as profitable as a Wonder Woman or a uh, as a Lord of the Rings game but we're going to do right by the people that supported us early on and we're going to take that all that they have learned over the course of those big budget massive games and apply that to something a little more niche genre focused, yes. but you know, I want I, I want more I want more like condemned or something along those lines. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I hopes for the future. Yeah, I mean, brutally honest, don't think we'll get it, but yeah, yeah. It, as long as they continue to do what they did with Middle Earth and without the interruption that, that they got with the last game, mm-hmm. then great, fantastic. So little interlude we had there <laughs> to say the least um, we go into our top three so Jay what's your number three and obviously if it's something we've mentioned already or if it's something I'm going to have we will not discuss it just yet my third pick is going to be Resident Evil Village oh. uh, which oh. <laughs> is a game that I think we both enjoyed <laughs> uh, for more reasons than one but I think mostly for me it did what I really was hoping that it would do in that it took a lot of the creepy atmosphere that RE7 drew, obviously, from the early Resident Evil games, brought it once again to a new perspective, that being first person, and it really leaned into it in a way that felt less 
restrained. You know, as much as I enjoyed RE7, it felt very restrained in that one avenue where it was evoking a lot more claustrophobic horror, something along the lines of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. right? Which I don't think is much of a stretch of an influence. And I loved it for that. But I was very happy to see with Resident Evil Village that it really opened up the genre influences in more ways than one. And it doing so mostly in the fact that it breaks up the game into so many different zones. And each of those zones that is accompanied by a boss feels like it has a wholly different influence for each of those zones, right? Yes. I think the first one is very much in line with the traditional RE experience, that being a creepy mansion, the undead, vampires to a certain extent. But then the game opens up to so much more than that in a way that I found to be really rewarding, right? You've got the lichens, yes. you've got these superhuman creatures, you've got these more like acidic spitting uh, main monster that is super depressed, which is very, <laughs> very strange and funny at the same time. Uh, and then you have like House Benevenito, which is one of the horror highlights of the entire year, yes. which I don't think is a uh, much of a stretch to say you agree with me in that regard. But I think that Resident Evil Village did exactly what I wanted it to do. It further fleshed out the variety of influences and it became a little more action oriented, even if for me, I wish that they had refined the shooting mechanics a little bit more. I think there's definitely improvements from seven yes. to village in the five hours that I replayed this week leading up to this. I still feel it's a little too loose for my liking, but at the same time, that is a very small complaint in a game that I think has further evolved what was introduced in RE7 in the best way possible. And it makes me excited about, and you know, we talked about this in our uh, Resident Evil, obviously, Village episode that we did early in the year, but also just our Resident Evil anniversary episode, uh, which I still remember fondly in terms of just talking about the series and the franchise as a whole yes. and how the series for me, has always shined in reinventing itself in the best ways possible. And while there have been deviations that have not always necessarily been to my liking, Resident Evil has been able to do what something like Silent Hill has never been able to do, in my opinion, in reinventing itself or introducing more modern mechanics in a way that don't completely corrupt that Resident Evil identity. It's always felt very true to the Resident Evil experience, even if it's done certain deviations. Yes. And while I might not have been in love with all of them, it's always felt like Resident Evil in some way, and it's retained that identity in an exciting way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, generally it very much has. And I think the biggest takeaway of that is that where Silent Hill ends up having to lend itself to a more serious tone, and that's really hard to continuously replicate and make different without, you know, being... <sighs> It's harder to do stuff that is serious and make a sequel to, to it that is also serious, because because you know standards are higher for serious fare. There's no doubt about that. And Resident Evil is never serious. Let's be honest; it. it's always about the melodrama. It's always about the, the hysterical nature of the idea. Oh my God! All this crazy stuff is happening, and I'm in the middle of it. It's more Carpenter than it is Kubrick. Yeah, it, it, it's it knows what it is, and that's why it's been able to evolve more as a result because it knows that, and you can take that in so many different directions if you you know what you're doing. Whereas, yeah, Dead Silent Hill has that issue where it's like, unless you're going to get the same level of 
director, shall we say, to make your sequels, you're always going to suffer. You know, Konami made the biggest crime of all. They they took it, not only did they get lesser directors, so to speak, but they went to a completely different idea of um, what should be done as a result by taking it across the pond to America instead of you know, Japan. And it, it made all the difference. You know, and Konami, you know, Konami there committed that sacrilege, but where Capcom began by sort of implementing Japanese style with American sort of style at the same time. So it was never really that much of an awkward transition to sort of continually make it, yeah, continually make it more American as it goes on, even in those things that the fans may not have liked as much, like five and six. You know, they sold well because those aspects what some people really really loved about those games and it became a big thing village again and we were just talking about this with like a james wan-esque sort of idea of a game and it really is there you know for me you know it's there's this ridiculousness to what village does that really sells it to me and like I was saying with Spookware, Resident Evil Village has a section in it that, that on its own would earn it a place here because yeah. it's so utterly superb. And yet, ironically, it's the least absurd thing of the whole game, which is, as you said, the House Beneviento, which is you know this mad dash through first-person horror where you're defenseless. You know, we talked about this as we said with Andrew King in a whole episode and here is this first person horror segment where you are you know defenseless for the first time in the entire game which you know is very unusual for a Resident Evil game you know to organically just force you outside of that you know and say no it's not because you run out of bullets or whatever it's just because this situation entails that you do not have bullets and they cannot be used and it doesn't matter and it just ends up being such a left field choice that it be, it's a great segment but it's not just because they oh it's not like normal Resident Evil it's really well handled you know they you know, the, the build from like this really well detailed empty building that's deteriorating and looks like it you know and to me you know, again, I go back to what I was saying before about being in these places where you work, where everything looks not quite perfect and looks like it's sort of going downhill and you're alone and it doesn't feel right and you feel isolated. It's there in that segment. And then it just gets weirder and weirder and then it gets somewhat terrifying, you know, when and I say big spoiler alert for anyone who's not played Resident Evil Village. This is the time you don't listen. That fucking baby last that's coming in is one thing. Because, you know, that's been done so many times, you know. That's the go-to, yeah. generally. But seeing the thing making that noise and what it is, is just mind-blowingly horrific, you know? It, it just becomes this 
whole yeah the rest of the game is going to pale in comparison and i honestly to this point detest any review or summation of this game that says oh because you know castle dimitrescu wasn't as that was it and it ended so quickly i didn't like the game it's like are you kidding because you know the game arguably if you're going to say that it gets worse at any point it's after that it's after that you know it's like and i'm gonna say personally yes it doesn't hit that height again but you know i think that's the start of the game really finding its groove and not being resident evil you know in the traditional sense Whereas, you know, the whole Castle Dimitrescu thing very much feels like eh, Resident Evil as it was. It feels like a baseline, right? It kind of just feels like it's getting you to the baseline of the RE experience, which I think is pretty vital considering, again, the variety of zones, but also horror experiences that Village dabbles in. If you don't start with that baseline, I would think that it feels more jarring than it actually is, Mm. right? It kind of is just like, well, this does this even feel like Resident Evil at this point? So you kind of have to give people something that feels very familiar to ground them and then you can get rightfully and get more experimental with it and I think it succeeds in that experimentation really well because of that. Yeah, I mean, it does so many different things. Beyond that as well, you know, it it, it goes to mad places that aren't necessarily pure horror. You know, it goes fucking... <laughs> it goes to Tetsuo the Iron Man you know, levels at one point which is again I think comes from depends on what the audience has experienced in horror and what they consider to be horror you know at that point and if you don't really have that a lot of what Resident Evil Village does is like filler to you you know and but if you're really into your horror and you expand and appreciate stuff that isn't like just the traditional sort of oh this scared me oh this unnerved me it's like stuff that is like a little bit silly a little like a bit over the top and a little bit what the fuck is going on here you know because horror is never just about being scared or about things being abnormal there's this whole other thing where it's like this is outside my, the remit of anything I would ever think of. And I think even in those later sections, you know, Village does it. And not in the same way that Six does it, say, for instance, you know, where it's like, or Five does it with, like, boulder punching on a volcano. You know, it, it, it's this whole... It feels true to the game that you got to that point, you know? Right. You know, like, because, yeah. Weirdly, Village, despite the many changes it makes along the way, tonally feels consistent. Uh, Because Ethan Winters, as shit a character as he is in theory, is perfect. You know, for this franchise, he's perfect for that type of experience. Yeah, because he is very much you. You, you everything is happening to him. You know, it's like he isn't involved he's surviving it and that's it that's all you want when you think of the classic Resident Evil experiences they are the ones where you are new to town you are new to a situation nothing is you know 
like expected you know like to me where the franchise goes wrong is usually where you know like, it's like characters who are slightly weary of the whole thing and they don't really care like even Resident Evil 4 to a degree that's a problem because it's like as much as Leon's like yeah I've seen some of this shit before when it works well is when they sort of like yeah but, but have you seen this yeah, and then they throw new shit in you know five and six they don't they just treat everything like it's the movies where they're like oh yeah oh who cares about a zombie dog who cares about a fucking 300 foot giant trying to kill you it doesn't matter none of it matters to them in there here it matters you know it it matters in the perfect way because Ethan Winters is a character where you're like yeah of course you know he doesn't understand any of it and by the end of the game you understand why you know it's like because he's not really yeah he's just he's not the person you think he is yeah I'm not going to go into it anymore because you know this is a general episode (laughs) and it, it, it would knock it but yeah at the very least, everybody should experience Village just to see the uh, the continued dedication on Capcom's part to uh, continue to dismember his hands mm. in the most graphic ways possible. Because that's probably my favorite comedic bit of any game. I of know the year, it feels least. so pe- <laughs> such a Peter Jackson horror <laughs> peak sort of thing where they're just like, it's like I hate hands, and this is it. This is what we're do. <laughs> and, and it goes somewhere that, that is the best part right. about it it goes somewhere that was our fours and threes um, so my three is Mundan is this in your uh... we'll come back to that one later oh okay what's your number two my number two is Murder House uh, which you know was initially released last year but came to console of course this year mm-hmm. we had um, Mr. Evan Miller on the podcast to chat about that in length so I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to that episode of uh, Safe Room but this was a game that again is one of those that really I'm tying a uh, my own personal uh, significance to it other than it being I think a great game mm-hmm. is that it opened up and it was my eyes to Puppet Combo right and the fact that this is not just a developer that is like well I could dabble in this lo-fi aesthetic and capitalize on that when everybody's maybe going the other direction and trying to make more highly polished experiences. Whereas this is somebody that is taking that lo-fi aesthetic Mm. and the entire game is based around that emphasis, but it is apparent in the gameplay. And he also makes it clear that he fundamentally understands the error that he is trying to evoke. Yes. And that is something that I find to be such a rarity in a lot of indie horror games that take this approach where they say, well, a lot of people are going for highly stylized, so we're going to make it more lo-fi and then we're going to rest on the laurels of the love for that era of games and people that love the look of those games. But Murder House was the game that, it being less than a three-hour experience, it completely capitalizes on gameplay from that era to the T fully evokes a lot of the love that I have for genre filmmaking within the context of a genre game of course it being very reminiscent of classic survival horror games and yet there is humor in that game that I find that largely eludes a lot of horror games right we talked about humor and spook mm-hmm. I think you had said spookware like is one of the funniest games you've played this year 
Humor in and of itself is very difficult to achieve no matter the medium, and the fact that they're able to achieve that in a game that is not only so short, but is very niche and tying into elements of genre that I think really only genre fans will truly get a great appreciation of it for that. Mm. Um, I think that the ability to not only capitalize on that era of gameplay to being very faithful, but also tying in humor into that in such a large way and taking the piss out of itself and the tropes of that genre and tropes that are still very apparent in a lot of genre filmmaking uh, to this day and it not feeling especially played out in the way that feels like very grown worthy, you know, of course there's probably a few lines in there that are standouts as being a little, uh, a little too on the nose, but overall it is an experience that I think uses humor in a way that is very self-aware that feels more mature than I experience in a lot of horror games. But at the same time, none of that undercuts the tension in this game and the horror in this game, right? That's an element that I think gets overlooked sometimes when you're talking about these lo-fi games, like, well, how could it be scary when it's evoking graphics in an era of game design that's 20 years, 30 years old at this point? This game scared the fuck out of me on more than one occasion, and that being like very, a very genuine fear on my part. And using those lo-fi uh, variables and whatnot, it doesn't matter because they were able. He was able to make this terrifying in a way that some AAA games have not been able to uh, to stir that emotion from me. And like yeah. literally playing this having one of those moments and literally having to set the controller down for 30 or 40 seconds and like, I'm going to go check Twitter or something. I'm going to go see what's <laughs> going on with my roommates or something like that and come back to it. because And, you know, as somebody that is inundated with horror, whether it be movies or games throughout the entire year, my weeks, my days, it's a rarity where I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to go take a quick stroll <laughs> around the apartment and then come back. And that, that being very genuine, you know, it's very easy to, uh, get caught up in talking about horror games and horror movies and this is terrifying this is horrifying murder house has at least two moments in it that literally scare the shit out of me this year yeah. and for that it has to be at number two on my list yeah i mean that that makes sense to me i mean i couldn't include it just because i played it last year and included it mm-hmm. on my bloody disgusting list last year but at the same time you know i will repeat what i said then that it's an atmosphere to it that really works that um as you said just doesn't appear very often i think nowhere is it better exemplified than in that prologue where you're in that very empty mall where the limitations of the visual style you know and everything that comes with you know silent hill you know for instance is infamous because of its fog yeah and the reason that's there to begin with is because of graphical limitations. You know, it's like that, that's the reason. It's not any real gameplay decision. And the darkness of the mall at the being a murder house is just so exquisite because it evokes that. You know, it, it gets that. It, it feels lonely and empty. And again, I go back to this thing I have working in places that are alive the rest of the day and then you're in a pl- in that place at night when nothing is happening and dead and <laughs> horrible it just works so well and I'm so ha- happy when games do that and, and that's just the prologue and then, and then you go to the you know murder house itself and it becomes this thing where 
you just get this drip drip feed of like nonsense and malice that really works so well and it is a fantastic game and it is very much a standout in terms of what puppet combo games are you know, I mm. think it totally totally deserves to be up there for you you know as a first time experience you know for you I get it I absolutely get it uh, being up there for you that's uh it's a game that you know again like I had said about Silent Hill it's a game that I think about quite frequently even though we just played it mm. recently but it is the definition of a game that I think is a perfect portal to a developer a singular developer's um catalog in terms of being i would assume it is more refined than some of his earlier works but it's probably a perfect indication Mm -hmm. of his sensibilities in regards to game making and it's something that has compelled me to go back now and want to play his entire games catalog and you know that's something i hope to do in the future and you know granted it came out last year but it just got ported to console it's the type of thing though i think I think when you're having a conversation about games of the year, you can't look past, and I'm not saying because it's not on your list, that's not why I'm saying this. I'm just saying in general, like, I think overall the conversation about the best games of the year can't necessarily look past something like a remaster or a port because the reality is, is that more people are going to be able to experience that and open more eyes to that. And, you know, me being an example, I'll be the example of that, right? Somebody that doesn't have a gaming PC at the moment is looking to change that in the new year and stuff but if this wasn't out on console I would not be experiencing this year and it had such a profound effect on me I couldn't list it in something like an honorable mentions because it has been such a fundamental chapter of this year in terms of horror gaming for me yeah I mean this this is the wonderful thing about Safe Room for us is that we come from two very different viewpoints you know we you know I am there are doing a certain point and you are doing a different point you know and you are closer to the average consumer experience and that is very much an important thing to have here when we're doing this and that's why having Halloween remastered and why having murder house in your list is very important you know because they are very important games you know that they exist and deserve to be mentioned and you know this is the first time we're doing an end of year thing for the podcast so why not you know why not have them mentioned I'm just being you know personally a very stickler type person because I've had the opportunity and the fortune to be able to play so many you know things so I can say oh well I don't want to not mention this 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 and this because you know this isn't going to be me reciting fucking 20 games and saying you know, that's it, you know, it's about both of us and our very different experiences, and that's how it is out there for many people. You know, there are the people that have an idea of what's out there, and there's the people that don't, and uh, we're sort of fitting both parameters of that. You know, we, we are covering every aspect nearly. You know, and that's good. That's what we need to do. So, Absolutely. um. My number two, before we uh, have a little break, um, in terms of doing the top five. Um, so th- this for me was slightly controversial in terms of it's not really horror in a traditional sense. But uh, the more I thought about it and going back to it again recently, I couldn't ignore it. 
you know, in the same way I could Deathloop, where it was like, you know, it's not horror enough. So Returnal by Housemart, you know, a developer I love anyway for the, the bleak sort of like cyber sort of horror that they do in games like Next Machina. It, it was a no-brainer because it's set on a world that is very Geiger-esque, you know, you know the creatures in it, the, the environment, you know, it takes the idea of having this sort of arcade sort of permadeath ideal and bringing it into the more of the roguelike idea. And that in itself informs a certain kind of horror, but it's cosmic horror, you know? There's mm. this, uh, like I said, the Geiger aspect to it, but also it just feels like you're always up against it. Like there's a real price for dying each time. You know, it, without there being any you know, very obvious visual consequence for that, it mm. there's something about Returnal that just bleeds the idea of horror to me. You know, it, it just, I think it's the combination of music and atmosphere, you know, that he's there that just really sings to me as something effective. You know, I it stuck with me all through the year, you know, where I've been thinking one of the, I was thinking of like games to think about for this very list. I just I can't not include it. It, it just right. it has that about it more than so many games I've played. It, it just it's intoxicating and I love I absolutely love a good roguelike and it's great at that I think the patch they've had recently that sort of gives you a chance to sort of maybe not have to play through a whole fucking run just to get somewhere but it it really really changes that aspect and maybe it wouldn't have been as high until that point but with that suddenly to me it becomes something wonderful and beautiful that needs to be experienced because it really does feel alien you know it's like sure you're on an alien world and you're facing alien threats and at the core of it it's very much no different than something like Next Machina right but the production values of it mean that it's unlike any other game in Sony's sort of big arsenal of games you know it it deserves praise and adulation for how different it is to you know the things that are quite rightly sort of criticized as being like yeah that's a sony kind of game now you know in the same way that that's a disney marvel kind of film sort of thing these are there are those and then you get something like paternal which is the minute you see those initial reviews for that game, not just from you know reviewers but and critics in general, but from players, where you get these like two things of like people who get it and people who need time to get it, and mm. or maybe get aggravated by it, and they're like, "That's good. That's good. That's how it should be. That it shouldn't be just like, oh, it's so accessible. Oh, it's good for everyone." They held out. They, they made the game how they wanted to make it. And it, it's amazing how well they translated 
that sort of style they had, you know, you know, because Housemark have been a company that's done like classic arcade style shooters with a modern visual sheen so well. But they've always felt like that. You know, this right. very much feels like a modern game embracing less than modern ideals. And it's brilliant for it. It just the punishment of getting through it just feels right. You know, in the same way that you know Dark Souls maybe feels to some people, you know, where it's you, know, you accept the punishment, you accept how it is because you're invested in what you're doing and invested in what that world is. And you know, Returnal really is that. It really is this really intriguing world where you want to know more about it and you want to know why this is happening and why that's happening. And to get there, you've got to prove your worth as someone who's played games, you know, and for someone who grew up in that age of like, you know, you don't have saved games or you're paying 50 pence a piece to play through this arcade game, you know, that's, that still resonates for me a lot of the time and as much as I've absolutely in love with the idea of moving away from it all the time and getting just trying to be something else when a game combines that aspect with something more modern that it's really enticing it's to me it's exciting and I want to know more because it's not only invoking nostalgia but it's, it feels exciting and new and fresh. And right. in the case of Returnal, kind of intimidating, you know? And Dark Souls has that, but this has it in a way that feels more naturally intertwined with horror for me in terms of like Alien and things like that, where nothing feels like... You don't ever feel like you truly understand the world you're in. Mm. And it's it's a mesmerizing game. Uh, I just I wasn't sure how much I loved it until recently. Sort of going back to it, and uh, with you know the old idea of having that save patch, and as much as that maybe takes a little away from what I'm talking about, I think it also helps. I think it really will help more people to discover why that game is actually deserving of being higher than some of the more revered exclusives on PlayStation. Right. It's a fantastic game, and I've always rooted for Housemark anyway, but this is just like, it feels like the perfect pinnacle. You know, this is the one they win an Oscar for for their previous work, effectively, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like this is Scorsese winning for The Departed, you know, when he should have won for Goodfellas Casino. It's... Yeah, that kind of thing, you know. It it's perfect in that regard, and I love it. And I think it's a game I'm going to sort of keep reminiscing on as time goes by, and want to come back to again and again and again. Yeah, it's the type of game that I wish was not exclusive on PS5 because I definitely <laughs> want to play that. And it sounds like, but you know, that aside, like it also from obviously a gameplay standpoint. 
looks phenomenal because mm. it's so tried and true to their arcade sensibilities. But also, like from the what little I know about it, it seems there's a greater emphasis on uncovering the mystery of what's happening, yeah. even if maybe in the end you don't always understand. And that's always been one of my critiques of roguelikes is that yeah the gameplay is phenomenal to the degree that you can play this over and over and over and over and theoretically not get sick of it something along the lines of um like darkest dungeon or you know ftl or into the breach something in those regard in along those lines but the narrative has never been something that i've ever thought about in those games for more than 10 or 15 minutes whereas with this from what little I know about it, it seems like there's just more of an emphasis on it. And even if at the end of the day, it doesn't end up being a massive, significant portion of what makes it remarkable or one of your favorite games of the year, or just a notable uh, entry in the PS5 library for this year. At the end of the day, though, it seems like it's moving in a direction where more emphasis can be placed on narrative or the atmosphere of these types, well, maybe not atmosphere, but just in terms of like fleshing out further, greater meaning behind the repetitiveness, as enjoyable as it may be, of the gameplay and whatnot. Giving just a little more nugget of significance to what you're doing, yes. I think is a great example of hopefully the future of roguelikes. And especially like, not that I'm terribly well-versed in roguelikes, but all of the roguelikes that I have played have been in the RPG space or the turn-based space in terms of Into the Breach or something yes. in Darkest Dungeon and whatnot. Whereas with this being more action-oriented and arcade-oriented and having those RPG mechanics be a portion of that experience, like that sounds like the ultimate sci-fi horror RPG cocktail for a game that I want to play very badly, uh, but at the moment cannot. But, you know, <laughs> it's one of those that... Uh, I definitely will put on my radar, or furthermore on my radar, and hopefully I'll get to play in the uh, in the future. Yeah, one day, one day. Right, so we are inching towards number one, which, given what we've talked about, may be somewhat obvious in one case at least. Um, but before we do that, we did get replies to the questions we got out on Twitter regarding our listeners' idea of what was there game of the year maybe surprise of the year um with the surprises obviously maybe we weren't slightly specific to be horror based but you know there were some good choices out there all the same but still jay Jay, i will hand that over to you and i thought i would highlight the just their games of the year because those were all within the horror realm um and you know listener replies which if people are interested uh every week on twitter uh, Safe Room Pod, uh, our Twitter account, we preview basically what we're going to be talking about and looking for user feedback, wanting people to share their thoughts on whatever topic we uh, broach for the coming week's episode. I've really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I've been pleased with the amount of people that have reached out yeah. uh, and sharing their thoughts because, you know, at the end of the day, as much as uh, I enjoy talking to Neil and whoever we have on as a guest, it's awesome to get input from a variety of people. You know, it's furthermore, facilitating a wider range of perspectives, people with different backgrounds, interests, and things like that. Um, Just getting more perspective on certain games has been a terrific part of the conversation, and I'm looking forward to continuing that into the new year and in the future with Safe Room. But let's get into uh, some listener replies for games of the year. Uh, Our buddy Harrison Abbott uh, said that Resident Evil Village is not only his favorite horror game of the year, but one of his favorite releases of 2021, full stop. Um, I think that that is definitely going to crop up more in uh, some of our listeners' favorite horror games of the mm-hmm. year. And, you know, it's uh, it's well-earned. It's 
a horror game too that you know I have spoken to people that I know like in real life and whatnot who are not necessarily the biggest horror fans but Resident Evil Village was one of those games that you know Resident Evil probably the most uh, well recognizable horror game franchise but also the more action oriented nature of this game I think has been able to give it a wider appeal to people that maybe are not as in love with horror or people that have not played a Resident Evil in a while I think it makes it more accessible for the wider pool of gamers while at the same time not not doing a disservice to the idea of what Resident Evil is in moving into that more action-oriented nature. Yes. Um, our buddy Matt Jordan, who um, we will uh, I will mention again later in the episode when we get to our thank yous, uh, he said that his favorite game of the year is uh, Metroid Dread, which got the most scares out of him. He says that it's a game full of Mr. X, but robots. Uh, <laughs> to take it back to Resident Evil for a second, uh, his favorite straight-up horror game, though, of the year was uh, Carrion, which is uh, basically alien or similar to the thing uh, where you get to be the alien or the thing, right? It's you play this uh, biological weapon. That's basically a blob that can consume people and get mutations and things like that. Um, That was a game that I played as well for the first time this year. I believe it came out last year, 2020. Um, And it was one of those though, that I love that going against convention instead of playing a human survivor puts you in control of the monster Mm. in a way that uh, I think works really really well for that type of game in the blending of sort of a uh, let's see environmental traversal with puzzles and combat at the same time within the role of a monster that uh, made for a very refreshing and at times hilarious uh, horror game see Steve Boland said that his favorite game of the year was uh, Murder House Mm -hmm. that was as I said one of my favorites as well that was a game that I think really opened my eyes to a, uh, a whole new crop of games, you know, not only just being that developer, but furthermore reinforced my need to sort of not judge games by their cover or their screenshots, as it were. Yes. Uh, the Evil Remain said that Resident Evil Village was his favorite, though uh, Tormented Souls was a sleeper hit for him, though he also enjoyed Murder House. Um, and, you know, as I said, Tormented Souls is one that, I have heard it and you know you kind of reinforced is an incredibly faithful and for the most part well-rounded um, homage to a lot of the weirder era of PS2 survival horror games and finally uh, Greg Musi uh, said that Resident Evil Village was his favorite horror game of the year and also you know a game that was a sleeper hit for him was Kung Fu Kickball which Sounds too intriguing to not mention, and I'm definitely going to look into that because that sounds like a blast for a uh, maybe a a less horror outing, but maybe give me a nice reprieve from whatever yes. horror games I'm catching up on. Um, but yeah, those are our listener replies, and you know I'm very appreciative of people that are reaching out and sharing their thoughts with us. It's the type of thing where it is uh, not only great to you know sort of flesh out our further conversations or use them sometimes as uh, jumps into talking points that we had, but I don't know. I just, with the conversation around whether it be games or film and things like that, I just love hearing from other people who, you know, we don't know a majority of people that comment, but I think that it is great to get a variety of experience, uh, points of view on things because like you and I have said previously, you and I getting to chat and getting to know each other better over the year and whatnot, you know, it has uh, definitely opened us up to new types of gaming experiences that we maybe perhaps were not as open to uh, initially and whatnot. But, you know, more perspectives, all the better. Yes, absolutely. Um, it just reminded me that um, I had 
a few blubs from Aaron Burham, who's also been on this podcast a couple of times, um, two of which I won't mention it because we're going to mention the games, I think, anyway. Um, but uh, on Returnal, uh, which I brought up, he brought up that this. I, I will read it about him. Uh, Housemark has quietly been one of the most consistent game studios, releasing deeply satisfying arcade experiences like Resident and Ex Machina. It was only a matter of time that they would take their arcade shooter expertise and apply it to a big-budget narrative game. Returnal's shooting is fast, light, tight, and plain feels great, uh, giving you a great variety of weapons to mow down hordes of unique enemies. The roguelike structure gives you a, a large array of options to modify your core loadout to... Sorry, I just dropped that. <laughs> uh, to explore and loads of particle effects filling on the screen. It moves to be smooth and loads light and quick, ensuring you'll be back in the action almost immediately after your many, many deaths, which is very true. Um, Returnal is very challenging, which can make the roguelike structure a bit frustrating in higher-level areas, as losing hours of progress to a new enemy type can feel quite punishing. Still, the moment-to-moment gameplay is so satisfying that it's easy to want to jump in for one more run, even after a particularly crushing defeat. And, you know, that puts across a point I didn't make there that is absolutely true on there. And on the other thing that you hadn't brought up yet, but because uh, the other games... I may bring them up when we're talking about them. Um, Spookware, he said, it's surprising to me that there hasn't been tons of games that take the WarioWare formula and run with it. I fully acknowledge that it might not be, I'm just not looking in the right place, but I'm glad Spookware came across my radar. The game lies at the intersection of Paper Mario and WarioWare, with little fun micro games taking the place of the turn-based RPG battles. Each section of the game has one micro game that is repeated throughout, such as playing the bongos in rhythm, with the standard WarioWare micro game blitz coming at the end. The games are a fun mix of high pressure puzzle puzzles with a macabre silly coat of paint. The story itself is surprisingly charming with some hilarious writing. Following a trio of skeletons who decide to take a break from watching horror movies in their basement to go on a road trip. <laughs> Bouncing from adventure to adventure, my favourite chapter, like mine, involves them solving a mystery on board a cruise liner where the micro game involves presenting evidence like a Phoenix Wright game. More episodes are in the works, guaranteeing there will be plenty of future content to challenge your reflexes and tickle your funny bones. Yes, so yes, <laughs> it's always wonderful to see more people sort of echo what I was saying on that one. That's kind of also what we love about those uh, the user comments is sometimes they reinforce what we've already said. So uh, that's it. And uh, <laughs> I, I got Aaron to do this for um, my article, but uh, so given that my article ends up being more about what I feel, you know, mm. I felt like I did say to him, was like, I, "I've got to mention them here too because I, you know, yeah. he he makes." Not because I agree with them. <laughs> so, but he makes points that I think are very true. Um, so we're on to our number ones here now, Jay. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's quite clear that uh, there is a game that you're <laughs> going to mention that I have already mentioned a few hours, yeah. um, whereas mine is going to be something completely different. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, Jay, what is your favourite horror game of 2021 my favorite horror game of the year is i hope that drum roll picked up on the mic uh it is mundan by uh hidden fields wow. 
this was a game that I had heard a lot about. Yeah. And then it was the type of game, though, again, like where I mentioned earlier, I was like, well, is this one of those games where it's just being praised for its kind of aesthetic and then it kind of heavily rests on that? Or mm. is there a little bit more to this? And I was pleasantly surprised to find that this is not only my favorite game of the year, but probably one of my favorite games that has tapped into folk horror in a game that feels so entirely genuine to that genre. So just before you really get into it, I will reference, because as I said, Aaron has kindly provided blows for both our number ones here. There we go. He's got knowledge. Um, so for Mundan, he said, when looking back on the year of games, it's hard to think of a more unique game than Mundan. The hand-penciled art style looks like nothing else, and the cultural perspective brings a large amount of authenticity to a fairly classic deal with the devil story. It's not often we see games that are set in a remote area of the Swiss Alps, and the infusion of folklore that the region enhances that already wonderful mood that the visuals set. Uh, while I find some mechanics, like the fear system, to be largely unnecessary, the core loop of exploration and puzzle solving is immensely satisfying. The world feels very natural while still using clever little level design tricks to guide the players along a path without being too overt about it. The game pulls some neat PT-style dream logic tricks on you as it drip feeds you information about the mystery, you know, the mysterious story. If you're looking for a small-scale spooky game with a stunning art style, Mundan is definitely worth your time. So, in response to that, Jay, please extrapolate further on why, for you, Mandana's up here. Yeah, you know, it's the type of game that I think perfectly understands what it's trying to evoke. You know, there's clear influences such as, you know, the two that come to mind being something like Wicker Man, Midsommar, right? That kind of folk horror uh, that has succeeded largely where I don't necessarily know that games have capitalized on quite as well as they could have, though, of course, I'm sure there have been games that have tried to do something similar. But Mundon just, it has such a even-headed approach to everything. You know, there are definitely a mechanic or two here, and specifically thinking about, like, the combat mechanic or the stealth mechanics that I don't necessarily think are the reasons why I enjoy the game. It's more about the atmosphere that they've crafted and the storytelling mechanics and, you know, the dreamlike way in which they explore this very foreign setting in a way that completely feels in line with what they're trying to tell. And it never feels like it's done in a way that overreaches in what it's trying to do, right? It's very much this experience that knows what it's trying to say. It's very direct in getting there. And there's still a fair bit of exploration there that doesn't make it feel maybe quite as restrictive as a lot of straight up just linear games are, right? It tells a very linear story and there's just enough freedom there that the player feels like they are actually exploring this strange world or this strange countryside or mountains in a way that doesn't feel like you're on rails. and. I never felt like I was given so much freedom that I was ever able to really get distracted from this sort of plot-by-plot point in the sense that I never really encountered anything that that deviated me or puzzles that tied me up for more yes. than a handful of moments, which I think is key in telling this story as well as it is. I think that I spent about seven hours with the game, and again, like 
there are enemies in the game, there is a combat mechanic to it and whatnot, and I don't necessarily think that those are any of the highlights of the game, but I think that they are in service of making this feel or adding tension to this game in a way that is perfect for what they're mm-hmm. trying to do. I don't think that it, from a gameplay standpoint, is necessarily evolving on survival horror in a meaningful way or anything like that. But at the same time, it does exactly what it needs to to tell a dreamlike story that is intertwined with folklore in a way that just feels very genuine to the genre that it is paying homage to in a way that I personally have not seen in games very often. And, you know, that kind of charcoal pencil drawn aesthetic of the game it doesn't feel gimmicky because the entire game is designed around sensibilities that go in line yes. with that. The game is not, there's not an overabundance of jump scares. There's not an overabundance of trippy dream sequences. There, it, Everything feels like there's just the right amount of it, that it does what it needs to do and they don't return to it in a way that feels like it is overlonging the experience. It doesn't feel like they're undercutting further examples of those dreamlike sequences. And it just feels perfectly in line with what I would want from a folklore horror in that it evokes, it places you in a very foreign place. It gives you just enough information that, okay, some strange things are going to happen. And then everything that happens after that, it feels in line with what you know about this place. Nothing feels fantastical to the point of parody. Everything feels fantastical and perfectly in line with the setting, yes. which I think sometimes can be a rarity in games that present this world that is can be very far out or can be ever-changing or can change or challenge the player's perspective of that reality, but it does so in a way that you're like, well, of course that would happen. Like, there's this <laughs> recurring thing where you find a goat head that begins talking to the player and it furthermore will like interact and go in your inventory and you'll have to like give it water and then it'll talk to you or sometimes it will um you'll know that you'll have to interact with it because you just start hearing like a goat bleeding (laughs) or something like that um and it's the type of thing where you would think that that sounds ridiculous but it feels perfectly in line with the mythology of this world or the just furthermore supernatural elements that kind of dictate the variables of the, how this world operates in a way that I found to be very refreshing and something that I just, I've not exposed to very much in games. And it made for a seven hour experience that felt like it was over in the blink of an eye because I just furthermore wanted to explore that world. And, you know, there's multiple, uh, I believe there's two or three endings to mm-hmm. the game and it made me want to go back and revisit the game, which is not something I necessarily always feel when I'm done with yes. a game, no matter how long it is. Like, gen- just, you know, the the busyness of life and whatnot, I'm often looking forward to the next thing I play. Whereas with Mundan, it was a game that I was looking forward to revisiting somewhat soon because the game doesn't feel like, even though I don't necessarily know all the understandings of what happened or necessarily understand every variable of the world itself it's still a world that welcomes exploration in a way that I don't necessarily know a lot of games do I didn't feel like I had exhausted everything in my first playthrough and at the same time I didn't feel like I hadn't I don't know I didn't feel like I was not fully you know Uh, my appetite for that had not been fully satiated. It's the type of thing where I felt perfectly comfortable with my experience while still wanting to know more. Yeah. And that's something that 
I can't attribute again to a lot of games that have attempted to do something similar. Yeah, I, I can totally appreciate that. Um, and I'm ecstatic to see it here, you know, this hype for you. Um, because, you know, Mundon is one of those ones that has sort of bored into my brain over the, the years since it came out and really just grow, in my opinion, you know, of, of what it was. And I think that visual style and that atmosphere really paid dividends, you know. It's... I think more than the story itself that they feel so unique you know there's something about it that you just do not see elsewhere and I must admit despite loving it you know how it looked and that to begin with I personally found it very tough to get into to begin Mm. with but as it got on and as persevering is you know one of those trite things you can say with oh you should give it time blah 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 like that you know so it you know people's idea of how much time to give stuff is different and you understand that I feel like Mundan you don't have to give it that much time to really get into the idea of what it does right Right. but I can totally appreciate how that might you know it's beginnings maybe a bit too much you know it's like especially for you know the more casual horror game observer it takes time to really get the ball rolling but I think with the frame of reference in mind where you are thinking of like Scandinavian folk horror it's almost like a reference point despite it being Swiss it it has a lot of that you know because of the mountainous regions and like um, like we did an interview with the creator on Bloody Disgusting and where he points out that it was very much based on a very personal history of a place he'd gone to and Know, the mm. things he dealt with there and you can feel it you can feel that it doesn't feel like just like we picked location x and spooky thing y to make this game it's like it very much feels like he's taken things from his own life and created this horror which seems unusual strangely in this medium you know like in film you get it all the time you're like oh well this thing freaked me the fuck out when I was told in my hometown blah 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 so this is the thing I made out of it in games it's so much rarer because it's so much more difficult to adapt that into <laughs> some sort of tangible thing shorter attention span of an audience yeah but to your to your point I think that it is so evocative of a setting that the person that's developing it is familiar with because he avoids do they avoid doing the thing that I feel that so many developers when they're making a horror game and you know maybe it's the medium itself but you know I was joking about attention span but there's some truth to that like I find that with a lot of horror games that are establishing a place there's the inclination that they have to have something Mm -hmm. ominous or creepy in the opening moment and Mundon opens perfectly with somebody that understands the setting in a way that they're you have to trust in them that they are going to understand when and where to put the ominous or creepy or scary moments in that the game opens with a bus ride you're riding up the mountain and then you're walking through and you probably don't encounter your first like overtly creepy moment or something for like at least 25 minutes which sounds like an eternity for a game but it is perfect in establishing this as a place and then the way in which it builds its scares and it's uncomfortable atmosphere at times is so gradual that it is akin to the like the masterful handling of a 90 minute film right this idea that if you come on too strong early on 
you're going to lose the audience because why do they care by the third act? They've seen all the horrifying goodies and whatnot. Whereas with Mandan, it does such a fantastic job of introducing this setting as a real place and then slowly and gradually introduces the more fucked up and terrifying moments, right? Because that's the thing that I always tap out on in a lot of horror games now, especially more modern ones, is that anything that comes on too strong, I'm immediately kind of put off by because it's like, it's almost as if the developer's saying, I don't trust that you're willing to wait to invest in a place before it goes to hell. And that is always, and that's not only just like a horror game thing, that is games in general. Yeah. I find that you need to place more of an emphasis on the place and it being somewhat viable, even if it is this fantastical setting, you still have to imagine that people live there. And Mundan does a great job of doing that and saying like, you're somebody that's coming here to visit. You want to go see this mysterious circumstances of your grandfather's death or potentially mysterious circumstances of his death. Mm -hmm. And then gradually it becomes further more mysterious. And the more in which you learn about it, things begin to go more and more awry, whether it be uh, psychological or physical manifestations of that. And that is just such an immaculate pacing that I think a lot of film has mastered, but games maybe necessarily haven't, specifically horror games. And it's just a game that is so indicative of somebody that fully understands the setting, the story, and the atmosphere that they want to craft from the outset that it was the full cinematic interactive experience for me for this year in a way that, you know, like I said, I just finished it this week and it's something that I'm looking forward to revisiting again uh, in the future. And it's something that I think some might be easy to say, well, you know, it's got this gimmicky look that doesn't look like anything else released this year, so it's notable. But the graphical aesthetic of the game is probably third or fourth on the ring of things that make this remarkable to me. If anything, it's the icing on top. It's never the reason why I would ever suggest this game because if anything, if it lacks all of the different elements that I've talked about, it is just kind of like icing on a cake that the rest of the cake is shit and it's got this pretty unique look to it, but that's never the case. It is this, for me, this immaculate experience that is one of the most notable types of horror experiences I've had in the last few years. Uh, it's fantastic to hear. Uh, so my number three, your number one was Mundan. Um, so uh, not to place any great importance on me being <laughs> last year, but um, my number one was easy once I'd finished this game, uh, probably even halfway through this game. Um, I just fell in love with the idea of what it was doing from day one, and it just only got better the deeper it got that game is inscription Mm. so I will start with a few words from Arama in which he says uh, clever card games like Slay the Spire and Hearthstone always grab me with their ingenious mechanics but I find they don't provide me with a narrative satisfaction I get from more traditional video games inscription manages to give me the best of both worlds. The first act of Inscription creates a roguelike card game that melds theme and mechanics perfectly while finding smart ways to tell a linear story within that framework. Allowing you to walk away from the table and do escape room style puzzles between rounds is a great twist to the formula and helps work with the visuals and music to create a mysterious and haunting mood. But once you get past the first act, this is crucial. The game really goes to some wild places, and while managing to retain and expand the card 
based uh, gameplay in surprising ways, the different layers can get overwhelming. But the core game is simple enough to understand and is definitely built to be broken by the player. It's so hard to capture how unique this experience is without giving away the many surprises, especially since some of those Enma game mechanics provide the most clever twist on deck building games I've ever run across. Easily one of the most unique experiences I've had all year. And I back this up by saying the premise is a card game you know nothing about played out in a candlelit cabin against an opponent you know nothing about. That's how Inscription begins. And for a little while, that's all it seems to be. And then you get that chance to escape. And strange things start happening. The cards begin to speak to you. And suddenly you find more and more freedom in what you're doing whilst realising the restrictions of what you're being placed in. And the realisation of this becomes something of an epiphany. And by the time you've solved that first little riddle of escaping that cabin, you suddenly get thrust into a whole new thing. And <laughs> like like Aaron says, it's just no spoiling it. You really ha- cannot experience this game the same way, you know, by hearing about it. Or, or even watching someone play it, experiencing it is the optimal way because it is the perfect example of a video game storytelling experience in that you need to play it to fully experience what it does well. And this is by the creator of Pony Island, which in itself is very notorious for doing these sort of subversive storytelling things. Yeah, honestly, I could allude to the subject so many ways, even here, and you would not, you know, without knowing what's going to happen, you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't have to guess how the culmination of the first act comes about and where it then goes. I guarantee you that. I, I bet <laughs> my holy life on it, or my holy <laughs> life on it, that you would never in a million years think yeah that's the way the story would go because nah, it's not that it's fucking genius to put it lightly and the fact that it begins in this way where you're not sure of what you're doing and you are very much placed in that very brilliant place that video games can occupy with you are the protagonist that knows just as much as you you go in to play a card game you know nothing about against an opponent you have no idea of their intentions and that's it you are both then in the same place and you both learn at the same pace and just as you both feel like you're figuring out what the fuck is going on then it goes another place and then another place and still keeping the idea of being a card game this really creepy card game based on wild animals and like these weird traits and like cryptids and things like that and 
that in itself like there's been a mod that's come out recently for it which is basically where you could just play the first act endlessly like that which sounds great in concept kind of ruins the game as it was personally I feel but it's just that card game is brilliant in itself I love it but it's nothing without the narrative that's building around it and the world that's being built around it and like uh, Aaron points out there it's like the minute you realise that you can get up from the card table and look around this cabin and there are ways and means to figure out a wider world it becomes mind-blowing you know it's like it, it just becomes this thing where you're like, I can't believe someone has made a game like this it, it doesn't feel real you know it's like and I get it I get certain complaints about things that come later and don't come later and how you know fundamentally you are just doing the same thing in different ways it doesn't matter come on how many big games or even indie games are out there that just play it safe or do the usual thing mm. this narratively speaking just does things that are just beyond so many you know I, you know I, I've spoken highly of Kojima's stuff on here and you know, what that does for pushing what games are into new areas and inscription does that for me absolutely and it was you know, in the process of sort of coming back to it again after like really putting some major hours into it when it came out um, I just I really just thought Christ yeah this, this is just fantastic it deserves so much praise and so so many awards and you know as much as I love Deathloop and I think it is probably like if my overall like game of the year for other reasons this in terms of pushing games forward this to me is just yeah the one exquisite beautiful fully deserving and it is honestly in the first act especially creepy as fuck (laughs) I will say that this game is the single game that has uh, further solidified that I have to get a new gaming (laughs) PC in the new year as soon as possible like not only just from obviously of course listening to your thoughts on it but I have heard so much about this game and read so much about this game and not been able to play it at the moment that it has uh, firmly lit a new fire under my ass to get a new gaming PC or just a new PC in general so yeah. I can play this because from all of the reasons that you've described, the idea that somebody could create this wholly original card game and have it be the driving factor behind something and it ha- just fuel this experience is an amazing feat in and of itself. Mm-hmm. The idea that they could do that all on their own, put this into a game, and then, of course, it being within the horror genre and it being actually creepy and not just being a more murderous card game than maybe some are used to, uh, sounds like quite the remarkable feat, and I really cannot wait to play Inscription uh, in the new year, hopefully. Yeah, it is very much a, a deserving. So those were Neil and my game of the years uh before we do some thank yous to round out uh the last episode of 2021 uh a brief bit of housekeeping uh as we're going to be on holiday as of the posting of this episode uh we have the aim of returning with our first episode of safe room in the new year on monday january 10th 2022 
Um, but in the meantime, if you find yourself in need of some uh, horror podcast uh, episodes or content over the uh, holiday and whatnot, please check out our now extensive back catalog of episodes from uh, the last year in which we chatted about all means of uh, killer horror titles and uh, a couple of personal favorite episodes of mine that we did over the year that I would encourage people to check out would be things like Alien Isolation, uh, Silent Hill 2. Uh, We had a really great conversation, I think, on uh, A Plague's Tale Innocence, Mm -hmm. which is uh, a game that hopefully we will be seeing that sequel in the new year. So those are three of my picks for games that uh, I definitely think people should go back and listen to those episodes, you know, of course, and I'll get into it in the thank yous. Um, we had a fantastic array of guests, and I encourage everybody that if, uh, for whatever reason, you don't want to listen to just Neil and I ramble on, we had countless fantastic guests, and I would definitely recommend seeking those episodes out. And as a uh, last end of the year push, if people have uh, a few free moments during the course of their, I'm sure, very busy holiday, if you could go out of your way to uh, go into iTunes and rate the show, Safe Room, uh, that would be highly appreciated. You know, it really helps us in terms of obviously the iTunes ranking, but just in general, you know, people recommending the show, it always kind of is a further boost if people are like, oh, you should check out Safe Room. They click on an iTunes and they get to see some ratings and uh, reviews and whatnot, just kind of further uh, boosts that consumer confidence in our very uh, humble podcast early beginnings and whatnot. Um, But Neil, let's get into uh, some thank yous. So I would say... First and foremost, you know, we have to thank listeners who over the course of the year, you know, has consistently tuned in every week and has helped our show to grow from our very, you know, humble means and whatnot. So you can't overlook that and definitely, you know, ties into those listener comments that we've been getting over the last few weeks and whatnot. Love seeing just the interaction with people that are listening to the show, getting feedback, and you know the numbers don't help, don't hurt either. <laughs> uh, we appreciate every listen and subscribe, and anybody that tweets at us or retweets the episodes. Uh, we really can't uh, express how much that means to us at the ver- very, very early stages of uh, Safe Room. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't agree. It's been a really wonderful experience, and that's definitely helped me personally. I think this year to. See- have this thing go out and have people react to it in such a positive manner you know and I've I've done podcasts before and it's been very difficult to get uh, you know feedback outside of a small group and I'm already seeing more than that here not just the people I knew before we did the podcast but you know brand new people and, and the people I've met through it and people I've got to talk through with for the first time uh, you know in this podcast it, it's just been absolutely wonderful i am so happy to have gone through the first what, nine months or so of this podcast and you know to, to know that there's so much more out there that we can do and the people we can still have on is yeah I, i'm excited for the future Absolutely. And, you know, we would be uh, remiss not to mention a special thank you to uh, our guests who were incredibly generous with their time. You know, this has been a very uh, difficult year for everyone, I think, in more ways than one. And so I feel, and I think I speak for you as well, incredibly fortunate that people are willing to give us their time for not only, you know, you always want to pitch the guests like, oh, we just, you know, we generally chat for an hour, but the amount of time that we talk to people and they're can be more liberal with their time than maybe we were anticipating. You know, we've had uh, 90 minute, two hour chats with people that, you know, you've had a working relationship with Rublay Disgusting and, you know, Twitter and whatnot, knowing and getting to know people more. But 
you know, it's it it's always interesting to invite people on and then it's always excellent to find that the same rapport that you have via text, whether it be Twitter, email or whatnot, ends up being the same when you get to actually talk yes. to them for the first time and have these very involving chats that, you know, to what you've been saying about why you enjoy the podcast so much, you get to expand more so and, you know, obviously in the moment and very uh, it can be reactionary, but in a positive way in terms of having this ever evolving conversation about games and this medium we love. So I want to extend a special thank you, you know, to all of our guests, that being Michael Sandell, Aaron Bame, Chris White, Matt Jordan, Daryl Baxter, Mike Wilson, Harrison Abbott, Evan Miller, Andrew King, and most recently, Reina Cervantes. And, you know, again, so much appreciation of those people for taking the time to chat with us. And, you know, we hope to, of course, chat with them again in the future. And we look forward to, you know, furthermore, having more guests on uh, in the new year and whatnot. And that has been an element of this podcast, you know, as much as I, of course, love chatting with you, Neil, one-on-one, it has been very refreshing to have people that I personally was not familiar with come in on, you know, a semi-regular basis and chat about games and, it being this very free-flowing conversation and being a uh, a space where everybody's opinion is welcomed and being able to chat about games in a way that, you know, sometimes the reality is you and I might not be able to just on our own. You know, sometimes you need that extra perspective or that perspective that greatly might differ from your opinion or my opinion, uh, which I think makes for, you know, a more entertaining conversation, but at the same time more informative in a way that I think is healthy for a podcast and helps us to grow in the long run yeah i mean we've had however many we've had 13 episodes with guests in that have, you know with 10 different guests and they've always been really nice to sort of you know change the pace a bit and have a bit of a different sort of opinion on you know and like i said whether i know those people or not beforehand has been uh pleasurable either way you know it's like uh, having mm. matt on it was great for me because you know he's so into Devil May Cry for instance you know where I was just like yeah that, that was I, I felt so enthusiastic to be able to talk to someone else that was like really into that like last week even with Raina where we just had this really cool chat about you know Until Dawn and games like that in general like it did so much to it you know, it, it makes for this whole other thing where Especially in the episode that you're like, right? Well, I know where we're both going to go personally. To have that yeah. sort of extra thing is like mm-hmm. amazing, great. I love that, and it just really ends up being like, oh, you worry about how much you can talk about, and yeah, sure, we end up <laughs> dragging these things out as much as we do because we enjoy it, and that's great. Yeah. I, that's what is the best thing about this. It's like it's a place to sort of really have those discussions that. For me, as I said before, writing only does so much. Yeah, I, I like to have these sort of more free-form discussions about things, you know, and uh, you know, with, where the guidelines to it are very yeah, okay. Yeah, it's not everything. It, it's just yeah, very succinct. This is more expansive, and I, that is to me just been so much more fun. Absolutely, yeah. And I want to extend a, a further thank you to uh, to Matt Jordan, who, like you had said, is not only guested, but um, I think he was a pretty instrumental part early on in helping us to craft the visual mm-hmm. and 
largely like the audio identity of the podcast in a big way. You know, Matt, who is a uh, artist and whatnot, and you can follow him actually on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Matt Paint E. Um, so he not only did our artwork for the podcast, but also that music track, ambient track that you have uh, been enjoying, I'm sure, for the uh, duration of our podcast, he also had made. And so, you know, a special shout out to him for helping to, you know, A, based off of a very brief email chain that we had uh, shared with him, nailing the look of our show, which I think is representative in the artwork and really helps to inform potential viewers or just viewers in general or listeners rather uh, about what we're striving to do with this and sort of the tone of our podcast and whatnot and the real theme behind it. And, you know, he further exemplified on that with, um, with the ambient track that plays in the back of our episode. So a massive thank you to Matt Jordan. Um, and then, you know, my last one of course would be, well, actually, Neil, did you have any uh, other special thank yous you wanted to do before I do my last one? I mean, I thank bloody disgusting for sort of giving me the avenue to get here. You know, uh, it, mm. it has been, the be- you know, one of the best things I've been able to do in this time I think as much as personally I've had up and down moments in like my own sort of confidence and what I write and what I say it's been really cool to do this and get such positive feedback as a result of it and that's really you know as much as we started this on our own and you know, as a sort of thing to just try out wouldn't have happened without having that avenue you know without that avenue i wouldn't be here doing this podcast with you today which is it's very important yeah and you know that's kind of in line with mine but i would say that my last thank you is you know to you because you were the one that reached out to me you know what was it almost a year ago now in terms of uh i'd say about a year ago you reached out and wanted to gauge my interest on doing something like this and it is truly been a highlight in regards to what has otherwise been a somewhat miserable (laughs) last almost three years now at this point in terms of just the way things have been but furthermore just giving me a new avenue to talk the genre that I love but highlighting a new medium um, has been a highlight of what has otherwise been a less than remarkable (laughs) chapter in my adult life but given the circumstances of what we're all living through right now but this has been uh, a, a weekly highlight in getting to, you know, end the week or now we're recording sometimes on the weekends, but has been a highlight of the end of the work week to, you know, yeah. kick back over a couple of cold ones, bullshit at length about <laughs> horror games or my podcast about movies. But at the end of the day, having conversations about the medium of horror that we love so much uh, in a way that feels more little... Hopefully people people that listen agree, like hopefully more than just like, oh, these were the scary bits of that game. That's why it's good. Something maybe a yeah. little more in depth, but at the same time, casual, you know, try to try to strive to make conversations, especially when having guests on who, you know, don't necessarily know all that well. Try to keep it as casual and inviting as possible in a way that maybe sometimes can elude uh I don't know, other conversations, but this has been a, a true highlight of 2021. And, you know, I'm very much looking forward to continuing this in the uh, new year. Yeah, absolutely. And we will see you then. Neil, as always, for the last time this year, but not the last time in general, thank you for joining me to chat horror for Safe Room. See you later. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod. Thanks again for listening, 